Exits for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the short we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have an awesome double header. We have an amazing interview with Zach Davison, one of the creative forces behind X-Men Demon Days, which according to the sales figures is just everybody's as obsessed with it as we are here and we couldn't be happier for its success and then we're going to take a look at hellions number 14 an exciting and twisted issue further evolving the story set forth in x of swords but let's get to that interview first zach was incredibly forthcoming with information about his and peach momoko's process and we had such an amazing time telling stories about creators and how that relates to this beautiful melding of Eastern and Western comics culture in the pages of X-Men Demon Days. Guys, we loved making this segment and we hope you guys enjoy it too. And if you enjoy what you hear, you might even enjoy what you see. So don't forget to go over and check us out on YouTube and Twitter as well as Patreon at X's for Podcast. You can sometimes even find extended exclusive versions of some of our video segments over on YouTube. So we hope you guys enjoy that. And until then, enjoy this segment. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we talk about comics, mutant magic and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles i'm nico and you guys can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n hi and i'm rod you can find me at rod comma the on twitter and instagram hi i'm tori you can find me on instagram at sm tori and on twitter at tori underscore sheehan and i'm jonah you can follow me over on twitter and instagram at peak jonah that's p-e-a-k and we hope you survive this experience just like we hope if you survived an experience with a yokai well okay that's the best transition because i am i am bonkers banana pants excited uh today because you know one of the things that makes the twitter experience really i think special for x twitter is the way creators have made them themselves so available and i don't want to sound ridiculous but our team is obsessed with demon days number one x twitter is obsessed with demon days in general but because it's such a mysterious book it almost feels mysterious like i can't possibly talk to the people who created it no and instead we are lucky enough to have with us today zach davison and we could not be more excited zach thank you so much for being here hello yeah happy to do so um i've been on lots of podcasts in my life never on an x-men podcast so I'm very excited about that too. Well, nice. we are just, it has been so exciting, right? Because like, so Tori isn't as much an avid current X-Men reader, but the minute I opened this, I knew like I had to bring her on. Rod reads literally everything at Marvel, I think at this point. He really yeah. is like <laughs> a a modern comic historian recording it as it happens. Yeah, and <laughs> I would have to agree. Jonah, is, Jonah grew up on anime and manga. And, you know, we tried to assemble a team who would really react to this book and then it came out and it happened and it was so freaking incredible now before we can even get into the magic that is you know mm-hmm. this incredible series i would love to know your journey sort of like what brought you to working on comics what brought you to working with the incredible peach 
and what ultimately brought you guys to Marvel. So, yeah, I mean, that's a long story, and we'll see what I can parcel through it. So first off, because this is an X-Men podcast, I thought I would establish my credentials, because one of the things I've learned doing these sort of podcasts is people need to know that I am someone worth listening to on that topic. So I have a little bit of show and tell here. Ooh. I love this it. Is, this is my <gasps> X-Men number one. Shut up! Oh, wow. Stan Lee. Uh, this was my 13th birthday present from my oh, father. Shit. My mother was very angry that he bought it for me at the time. It was quite expensive, but there it is. Oh, wow. Um, this is my <laughs> yeah. X-Men number four. First uh, Scarlet <gasps> Witch. First Scarlet Witch, and, first Quicksilver, yeah, first Quicksilver Brotherhood. Appearance. So <laughs> I have been a comics book fan for a very long time. And for a lot of that time, the X-Men were absolutely my jams. I mean, like, I loved the X-Men probably before most of you were born I'm gonna guess um, you know uh, yeah so, um, I don't think that's the case so thank yeah. you <laughs> So I'm, yeah, I'm a long-term, like I, I've been reading comics for as long as I can remember, you know, it's just one of those things that I, you know, I started out, actually I started out with Conan comics was probably my first thing because um, I loved Conan. I loved the books. And actually I still remember this because my mother came on this, this used bookstore and found like a big box of cheap, like a big box of cheap Conan comics for like three bucks or something. So she brought it, brought it home to me. And I just, I just fell in love with it. I just thought, oh, these comic things are great. And from was there, I was The black just, and know, white mags? No, like- no, it was the, it was the Marvel issues so oh, awesome um, yeah and you know from there i just started branching out and picking stuff up and i eventually you know found my way to to marvel because marvel was really my my main thing like i read um i mean i read x-men obviously because they were brilliant um i and i liked all the quirky ones like i used to read defenders i never really got super into spider-man that's not just or or even like any of the big ones like i don't really like spider-man i don't really like iron man or thor but i always liked the sort of odd parts of the marvel universe and even back then i mean the x-men were never really the they weren't the big team, you know, um, they were certainly no. secondary to the Avengers and things like that. And that obviously has shifted multiple times over the year. You know, I have just always loved them. And then, you know, later on in life, I started discovering Japanese comics. You know, they started coming out. I mean, not just growing up myself, watching TV shows like Star Blazers and Battle of the Planets. I got really interested in things like Battle that. Battle of the Planets! Oh, yeah. And then, um, you know, slowly, I mean, very slowly, Japanese comics started to be published in English. And that would have been like probably around the mid 80s that that started to happen and you know I got into that and I just like to me those two I think it's one of the weird things about the modern world that to me is strange is that you seem to be either a manga reader or a comics reader and those two Mm. were never separate for me growing up right you would go to the comic shop and you would get your manga and you would get you know you'd get your you know my the psychic girl right along with your x-men and your stack would always have both that seemed like the normal way to read comics and so that's how I've always processed them like to me they're all just comics I don't really even like the word manga I use it because I realize it's entered the common parlance that way. But to me, I think it creates an unnecessary barrier between what a comic is and because they're just comics, you know, all of them. So, you know, I got started getting excited about comics. I, you know, Japanese comics. I started studying Japanese and then didn't learn anything. I mean, I think that was junior (laughs) high because Japanese is really hard. I don't know if you ever tried, but it's ridiculously hard language. I guess two people on the bottom have tried and you can see (laughs) from the exasperation. (laughs) It's a lot. It is. 
vast majority of people who start give up. I mean, they do. And that's just normal because it's harder than you think. You know, it's like it's such a mountain to tackle. And that's not anyone's imagination. Like the U.S. government, actually the U.S. military, they classify languages via difficulty. And that's basically how many hours it trains to get someone up to the level that they can operate in that language. And so they're graded from level one, which would be fairly easy for an English speaker to master, like Spanish, um, up into level five, which are the most difficult languages on earth. And there are two and only two level five languages on earth. One is Arabic and the other is Japanese. And of those two level five languages, Japanese is starred, meaning that it's slightly more difficult than Arabic. So for (laughs) English speakers, it literally is the most difficult language on earth for them to master. So it's, you know, if you tried and gave up, forgive yourself because you were trying to climb Mount Everest and that, you know, and understand that. So, uh, you know, and I think I did like a lot of people where I just sort of did it and I drifted in and, you know, I life happened. And I just remember like one day I was sitting at my desk and this, I was working at Amazon at the time and I was a training project manager and I was just sitting at a little desk. And I think I just turned like, I just turned like 33 and I was just like, is this it? Is this all I get out of life? <laughs> this kind of sucks. I'm just going to sit here in this little cubicle and I'm going to tap on this little computer. And I'm just like, and I'm just like, I'm out of here. And so I looked up and I found this thing called the jet program. And the jet program is like, you can go live in Japan and work in Japan for a year. Many um, friends, many friends yeah. did jet. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, that sounds way more awesome than sitting here at Amazon. And I'd never been to Japan. And I was like, I was always interested. So I'm like, screw it. So I quit my job at Amazon and I jumped on a plane and flew to Japan. And like many people who intended like, you know, I don't know, there's certain people like I intended to go for a year. I ended up coming back like eight years later. Um, I ended up getting my master's degree over there, you know, spent a lot of time in Japan. And just like with Japanese, a lot of people will go and some most people will go on jet and they'll return after their year and they had a nice time and it doesn't really affect them otherwise other than they had that nice year then you have people like me where it entirely changes the course of your existence when i was over in japan also i discovered this manga artist called mizuki shigeru and i absolutely just fell in love with his work like just head over heels like i'd never experienced anything before like this in my life and his work was untranslated into english and so i just made it like i literally made it my mission to become his apostle and try and get his works into english i was that serious about him so i came back to the united states oh and part of the reason why I liked Mizuki Shigeru so much because of his works and why I decided this that Mizuki Shigeru he actually died a few years earlier and he died at 93 years old and he made his he was he and he is he is beloved in Japan it is hard to describe how beloved Mizuki Shigeru is I mean he is easily on like a Walt Disney or higher level of um, fame in Japan he published his first comic book at 40 years old so his career started at 40 and so that was one of those things where I was just like I was thinking about to myself I'm like well Zach you know, you're almost 40. You've always loved comics all your life. You know, why not just try? What is the worst thing that can happen to you if you just try, you know, to do what Mizuki Shigeru did and start a career in comics at 40? I mean, why not? I did a bunch of stuff that didn't work like everyone does that when they start comics. You know, I joined a, a comics website because when you, that's one of the, like the ends into comics is you get a press pass, you start going to conventions and you start making contacts with people and you start, you know, and so I did, I did that route. That was really 
my route into comics really was a lot of um, was this stuff, just going to conventions, you know, writing for websites, learning how to process, learning how to think about comics, learning to understand what makes one comic successful or another comic not successful and just trying to think about them other than just as a reader going like, oh, wow. I eventually hooked up with Drawn and Quarterly and they allowed me to publish Mizuki Shige's works with them. And that was fantastic. So our first comic that I did with Drawn and Quarterly was Showa History of Japan. It was nominated for an Eisner Award, didn't win, but you know, doesn't matter. It was still awesome. I was in comics now. And that was like the best feeling to know that I now officially worked in comics. And from there, that's really how I mean, my career has just led to a bunch of different spots, you know, so like I eventually did. I won two Eisner Awards working with Drawn and Quarterly. And then I branched out because I love Dark Horse comics. I just absolutely love Dark Horse. And so I got to know the Dark Horse crew. And then I started translating Satoshi Kon's comics for Dark Horse. And then I started working with other publishers, just mainly doing translation. But I also I also write too. I mean, like translation to me is fulfilling, but it's like it's not all I want to do. I always wanted to be a writer translator. That was like my goal. And so I've written my own books as well. And I, I did my own self-published comics with a friend of mine, Mark Morris. And then I met I met Jim Zub and he was doing his comic called Wayward. And at the time, you know, Jim was nobody. Nobody knew Jim Zub was. You know, he was just a, the guy that did his own little, he did a self-published comics. You know, that's what Jim, Jim Zub did, you know? That's crazy. Um, that's really yeah. funny to hear. No one knew Jim Zub. I'm like, that's Jim Zub! <laughs> but I mean, but that's that's kind of how these things work. Like, I think one of the most interesting thing with comics, and you'll and I give this advice to new people interested in getting into comics all the time, is like, find your peers who are going in at the same time, and then you can all come up together, right? Like, if you're like, oh, who should I network with? Oh, I know. I'm going to go network with Jim Lee. That's not going to happen. now. <laughs> you know, you wasted your time. But maybe Tori Sheehan down there has an idea for a comic, and you're both nobodies. And that way you can work together and learn together and move yourself up through the system. You know, it's just kind of how that works. Tori draws um, my comic. That is perfect. That is awesome. So um, so I started working with Jim Zub on Wayward, and that was that was a like for us, that was an amazing uh hit. Like I remember the first issue of Wayward sold 30,000 copies, and Jim, where I was just like, Oh, I can't believe a comic can sell that many copies. Oh my god, you know, 30,000. <laughs> I mean, never had anything close to that level of success before, you know. And you know, and from there I just started working with other people and I started tabling on my own because once you have enough stock, you go out and you start tabling on your own. And then how I met Peach was essentially the same way. I was at Rose City Comic Con and I was just walking through and I saw there was a Japanese artist. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I went up to talk to her and um, she was there with her husband, Yo, who acts as her interpreter when she's there. And once again, Peach was nobody. Nobody cared. She was like there with her little self-published zine. I actually, I have it over there. I should go grab it and show it to you guys. But yeah, you know, Peach was literally just there with her little self-published zine sitting in a tiny little table, you know, in Artist Alley. And as everyone walked by Peach, you know, but Peach and I started talking and I really liked them both. And I thought she did amazing work. And so we did like, let's stay in touch. And that was the shocking part is that we actually did stay in touch because like 99 times out of them, you know, out of 100, you say, let's stay in touch. You're like, yes, let's. And then you both walk away saying, I'll never see that person again, you know. And so Peach and I, over the years, like we've actually tried to do several comics together over the years. We've been like pitching stuff to people, but it's just never really taken off. Like we've had a few people that were interested 
interested? And then like, mm, maybe not now or maybe later. Or, you know, people were pretty laissez-faire about it. We got really close once doing what I consider to be like one of our dream comics. I can't tell you about it, but I'm always hoping that like now, like now that we go back and if we pitch the same comic to the same company, I don't think they'll turn us down because, you know, now it's Peach Romoko, you know, <laughs> uh, whereas before it was, who the hell is this? Uh, so and then that's been awesome. Like I have loved seeing Peach's star rise. It is so amazing. Uh, she has just been, she's an extraordinary person. She's obviously an extraordinary artist and she deserves all of her success. And I think it's been so great. So when she got hooked up with Demon Days, it was, you know, so she, and I'm not sure, I don't know exactly how the background eventually came, but eventually I just got an invitation in my inbox, which is always funny because you get invitations in your inbox and like, I'm just always wary of stuff that seems too good to be true. You know, someone's like, hey, Zach, would you like to work with Marvel? We can't tell you what it is because NDA stuff. And so you do that and you sign your NDAs and you're like, well, I hope that this is real. Sure would suck if this is a way to scam my credit card or something. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> Eventually, the mail came through and eventually it was real. And it was, you know, my finally, Peach and I got to work on a comic together. And it was really great. You know, they they started, they hired me at first. like, And I think that the editor, Lindsay, has been so great to work with because she's just been really flexible about the way we work. I mean, the first time that she hired me, so apparently, uh, I haven't, I've only met him very briefly, but apparently C.B. Sobolski like handpicked me and was like, you know, we need to get that guy on this comic with Peach. And so that's how that worked behind the scenes. And Lindsay's like, hey, we're going to hire you. I don't know exactly what you're going to be doing on this comic. And I'm like, no worries. You know, I will, I will come in and figure it out. And, and cause Peach and I, like we, we created a way of working together that I really think is unique. I don't know of anyone, any other team that works together exactly the same way we do. And it was funny when the first issue came back because everyone kept saying, you know, translation by Zach Davison, translation by Zach Davison. I'm like, do none of you people read the credits? It specifically doesn't say translation, you know, but nobody does read the credits. We changed the credit for the next issue, hoping more people would that that would dispel the idea that this was a translation. And, oh my God, that was so funny because I remember someone posted like this Twitter thing where they were like, "Oh, you know, it's good, but it's not as good as the Japanese original." And I was just dying laughing because I'm like, "There is no Japanese original." I mean, someone there is just trying to like act like big themselves up by saying that they know some secret, and I'm like, "You don't even know, you complete knob." Wow, that that's is- like the opposite of neil gaiman's dream hunters which mm-hmm. he said at the time was based on a traditional japanese oh, yeah. bit of japanese folklore, folklore. Mm-hmm. and he totally made the whole thing up in a good way but mm-hmm. oh it was fantastic yeah spectacular but it, it is not based on a piece of japanese so it's sort of the opposite sort of the opposite of that <laughs> oh yeah Oh, that's amazing. And I think it's still like it's come. It's taken a long time for people to come to grips with the fact that Demon Days is not a translation. I you know, just like I keep telling this people over and over and over again, like it's not a translation. It's not a translation. And the last round of reviews, you saw more and more people not use that. So I think it's finally sticking in. Good. That's good. <laughs> that is amazing. Now, I, I have to turn the mic over because so many of us have had so many guesses about what things are. I wanted to start with, did anybody have any questions about the characters? Since we're at Demon Days, I want to I want to just ask a few questions about Demon Days straight off the bat. I mean, I know for me, one of the things that was the most exciting was this brilliant reinterpretation of Psylocke as Psy. I thought mm-hmm. the play on her name, the duality of it, is clever and nuanced. 
the way she is and to give her this sort of hero's journey. And that was something, Tori, you and I talked about extensively, the reimagining of the hero's journey as a non-gendered interpretation of the hero's journey. I just, I love these character iterations and I would love to know your feelings on them and your guys' questions. So, I mean, yeah, I'm ha- like, I can't give away any series secrets. So sadly about that, because we've got a lot of cool stuff coming in. But yeah, I'm happy to do it. I mean, one of the, I think one of the main things with, with the characters that were chosen, I mean, um, Peach really chose Mariko. And I know because I've talked to her about this, like she chose Mariko because she felt it was a character that she could really make her own. She felt it was a character that she liked, that she loved. And Peach had actually done a, like an art card for a trading card set of Mariko at one point in time. And so that was really the foundation of Peach's idea, you know, of love, love for Mariko. And so she was like, I can take Mariko and this is basically a blank character and I could do something with Mariko. You know, everyone else is way too established. So that was where, you know, that was where that all started out with and like even with you know with Sai and Juju and you know all of those characters like I was just astounded by it too I remember when I first when I first heard about it I was a little wary about what would be delivered because one of the things that I think that almost nobody knows about Peach unless you've really followed her for a long time is she is primarily a horror artist that is what she does she has always been a horror artist her horror art is dark and so disturbing that she had strips rejected from heavy metal magazine for being unprintable and i know the stuff that was unprintable and it was unprintable i mean yeah i mean yeah peach is um juju's mama made 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 hyper violent nightmare comics Oh, oh, beyond, beyond imagining. I mean, like, unprintable nightmare comics. And, like, when I met Peach, like, that was what her thing was, right? All of her stuff was just horrible, you know, like, Shintaro Kago style, if you're familiar with him. But, I mean, just, like, like really body horror stuff as well. Like, just, you know, like, people splitting apart, you know, body parts everywhere. So, this is the Peach I know. I mean, I know that she can do other cartoony stuff, and I've seen her evolve. So, like, I, to me, Peach has two different styles. She has, like, the, the cartoony stuff, you know, and then she has, she has, what to me, is just is peach you know just the brutal violent gory just harsh horror stuff um so then she's but she's doing x-men and which i think is great you know and then she you know they send me the first the first issue to dialogue and i was just like she just nailed it you know she did such a good job with the characters and she did such a good job interpreting everything and yeah so but yeah by all means i don't want to just blather all the way chat throw me characters it's so interesting to me with these characters because it sort of sounds like something that Nico and I would get up to at two in the morning where we're like, okay, but what if these characters are secretly all of these characters in the Powerpuff Girls? And for it to just come out like this and something so beautiful and so amazing, you know, was that was that sort of what she was originally deciding upon that she really wanted to kind of transpose? I think, I don't know. See, I don't know that she put that much thought into it. You know, honestly, I've seen her character designs. And also I will say that, that C.B. Sabolsky also did a really good job of like he's a great guider of talent so this was another interesting thing that peach did is that she auditioned for demon days by writing demon days she created a fully painted comic and sent it into marvel as her audition i mean it was crazy because no one really trusted peach to be able to do sequential art you know she mm-hmm. was a fine coverist they didn't know that she could do sequential art and as far as her character design i mean she wants she brings in a lot of elements that are just pure peach as well like like the bone armor for mariko and 
a little what she calls the point point care. She's been doodling that in her sketchbooks since high school. I mean, these are literally just elements oh, of wow. design that she has just been creating over and over again. And so she finally gets the chance to bring these into a, a published product. You know, she just has tons and tons of sketches of just little, you know, all of these details. And so it's really like, it's really just a, an accumulation, I would say, of what, how you see Peach's imagination, you know, what she thinks things should look like. You can see more of her her natural horror elements coming in, especially in Mariko, right? So mm-hmm. you see more of the body horror stuff coming in, like like when Mariko coughs up the key, right? That was just like, I'm like, oh, that's Peach right there, you know, something that makes you really uncomfortable just to view is what um, reminds me of Peach's art. Yeah. Was there a certain amount of pulling back for some of her choices to be safer for an X-Men title? You know, honestly, our editor has let us do pretty much whatever we want to. So I think, yeah, I think that from the start, they just kind of gave Peach free reign. And I think that, you know, from it's also a level of just gaining confidence on Peach's side. You know, she's done like sort of like they should like the first one with um with a juggernaut and Emma inside, like that little 10 page preview, you know, this is just a little safe, you know, piece. But then as she as each issue comes along, it's just really amazing to see how she sort of like matures in the story. And as you can see that she's bringing more elements of her voice instead of trying to like make like what's a good, you know, Marvel comic to more like what's a good Peach comic that happens to be published at Marvel, I would say. Let me say there's some parts in Cursed Web that are better Peach. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, like, oh. I didn't know she was like that at all. It doesn't make sense now seeing because um, I saw recently I didn't know she had them, but I was researching covers and something mm-hmm. is killing a children cover and Department of Truth cover. She did those covers and they are very like the art you just showed us because those mm-hmm. are that those are very horrific books. Um, and I was like, oh, this is new for Peach. I've never seen this. And apparently, no, that's her. No, that's her old style. Yeah, that's her old style. Yeah. And I still think, I mean, I still think of Peach as primarily a horror artist, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, James Tinney and Didis did his um, horror series, Razor Blades. I don't know if you guys read that at all, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we were going to do something for that. But one of the unfortunate things about Peach being on a Marvel contract, which is both awesome for her and also sad, means we can't do anything else that's sort of like fun and extra. But, you know, that's just for now. So how did you guys get permission to use Natasha? Like so, that's that's been on my mind because like my I I'm I'm perhaps a bit of a Wolverine guy so I perhaps perhaps a Wolverine guy I love Logan so much <laughs> and I love Mariko so much and I'm like. I kick everything. And I'm like, I wonder, because Natasha and Logan, they have that amazing backstory moment. Mm-hmm. X-Men 268, you know, oh, Claremont yeah. really killing it on that story, that perfect Captain America cameo. And I, other than that, there's not a lot of uh, binding ground between Natasha and the X-Men. So like, this was a veritable feast of mm-hmm. Natasha excellence in X-Men. Was there some process that you guys had to go through to get her? No, to be honest, one of the joys of working in a non continuity comic is you're you've got a lot of freedom you know if you're working in an au comic like demon days you can pretty much do what you want because it is of no consequence right so we can have natasha in there can have basically anyone we want in there i mean there's we have a lot of characters coming up in the next issue that you're going to be i think pretty surprised by especially because i heard your previous podcast about it and i'm like oh we've got spies coming up for you we just um, aren't <laughs> sure who the last person is <laughs> that, that was, was my question that was so good that was so who good. is it who 
is it? Tell us. Can you tell I can't, us? I can't. Okay. I can't so it's okay. not been publicly released. Okay. Yeah. So we're not in the dark any more than anybody else is in the dark. Mm-mm. Yes. Demon days um, indeed. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, but once again, that's one of the joys. Like I and I love non-continuity stuff. Like I honestly like like I have dropped out of X Men for God, I don't know, decades now because I read X Men up to a point to where it changed. It was no longer my X Men, and that was that was fine because it was a new generation's X Men. I think that's a great thing about it, especially continuity comics is like you know stuff that speaks to you up to a time and then it, it moves on to speak to a new generation and it no longer speaks to you and to me i think that's great i was happy to pass the torch to a new generation so i haven't read x-men for gosh i think i dropped off at about issue probably 300 or so around there you know um so somewhere around a lot there. has yeah. changed right and that was one <laughs> of the good things about doing once again an au series is that it's all characters i recognize it's and peach is the same way she likes the sort of like classic x-men you know she likes the classic characters she's not really bringing anyone obscure um, there was one character she brought in that i didn't know who it was and so i had to look that up but for the most part you know she really she's like my my era you know she likes those those classic x-men i was surprised that she in the first book that demon days that she brought in danny moonstar as a little girl oh yeah i was was it because that she does the bow and arrow was that like the, the reason or was there like a more significant reason on why she just liked the bow and arrow um, I okay. think like because that's one of the conversations that we have a lot internally is how beholden are we to the characters as they are versus how can we just make something entirely new Mm -hmm. and the answer is really um you know there's there's a magic middle there right the characters can be entirely new but if they go so far that readers no longer accept that as the character then i just think that's too far so we're always trying to find that that middle balance you know we're always trying to find like where how far can we take this character i think like kuya our nightcrawler is a really good example of that right he is just his own thing and he was funny too because that's one of my problems also is because when i first start dialoguing the books i tend to dialogue them like the x-men i know um and so nightcrawler (laughs) pops up and he's cracking jokes and he's doing you know his nightcrawler thing and pete pete sees what i wrote and she's like no (laughs) this isn't isn't my nightcrawler my nightcrawler doesn't talk and i'm like well he's got to talk a little peach you know and um and and but but i love but i mean but that's her interpretation of the characters it's like you know this really like silent sort of ominous figure you know and i'm like and so you know and like but that's always that's what i said that's one of the funniest ways that we work together is there's a lot of this back and forth there's a lot of me sort of processing what i know is the classic version of these characters their own voice and dialogue versus peach's interpretation of them and trying to find i think that real middle ground i'm very i'm very happy and i am proud of my um sticking the bam there in the second <laughs> issue uh, yes because that was originally not in there also and our letterer ariana who's also a good friend of mine we love her we, we, oh, are, nice. we are big fans we've had her on yeah. the show we think the world yep. of ariana ariana mar she wants yeah. it said like boston mar Yes, Ariana, yet another person who um, just, I met her at Rose City Comic Con. I mean, Rose City Comic Con in Portland is really the convention that spawned Demon Days because that's where all of us met. But, you know, when I met her, she was actually way higher up in comics than I was. Um, and now we're all working on Demon Days together. So it's just been, uh, it's been a magic.
magical, I don't know, magical experience. There's a lot of good zeitgeist apps there. But I got to I got to give Ariana her first BAM to letter. So she was very excited about that. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, something I would love to know for these stories, do is the story like the plot and elements created first, and then the characters you find the characters that you can use and stick them where they are, or do you choose the characters first and figure out how can you fit them into a narrative in a story? Definitely the plot first. So Peach has Peach has all of it plotted out. And then, you know, she has characters she wants to use because she likes them or she likes their design or for whatever reason. She also has certain characters that she thinks make nice avatars for various Japanese characters. And so she uses them that way. But the entire series is all plotted out. And the basic process, so like it'll be plotted out. And then Peach will, you know, work with Lindsay, our editor, and they will get the, you know, those sort of like rough sketch version. And then that's what I get sent. So I get sent this sort of like rough, really rough, pencilly sketch version of the comic. And then I go in and I dialogue the whole thing. And so I put in basically if anyone's talking, that's me. That's my addition to the comic. Because most of the the other stuff I get from Peach, I mean, she will add in sample dialogue sometimes. Like she'll do like stuff like, you know, like, oh, I want this person to say here where, where it's really important. But for the most part, it's just just blank pages of art. It's almost like the old traditional Marvel, Marvel method. Style. Of, yeah. yeah, Marvel style where you get the art and then someone else goes in and dialogues it. Love it. Oh, we actually had uh, Jay Ferber who worked on Gen X in the 90s as well as the oh, nice. uh, third run of New Warriors in the mm-hmm. late 90s. And he also did a big run on Titans. And we had him on and he was saying that uh, there was an issue where we we're like, no, we have to know, were you credited as co-storytellers here because blah, blah, blah? Or why did the credits change? And he was like, they must have changed the credits that week. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. And he was yeah. like, we all just did Marvel Method. It was just mm-hmm. Marvel Method back then. So yep. somebody just changed the credits without <laughs> This is what it is, man. Yeah. Yeah, and even like like and even like the traditional Marvel method because definitely like there's a difference between the traditional Marvel method and how Peach and I do it is that you know we will Peach and I will then work together to finalize the dialogue. So it's not like like I get the art and I just dialogue it and she's stuck with whatever I dialogue. You know that is definitely not it. You know if I do something that Peach really doesn't like, which has absolutely happened, um, the two of us will talk it over, and sometimes my idea gets in, and sometimes Peach's idea gets in, and I think that the final product is always better. Like when I actually see the printed page, I'm like, oh, I'm really glad that we went with Peach's, you know, version there because it's just better. And then there's other stuff where I'm like, oh, I'm really glad that I went with mine because yeah. So, but it's like this whole process of collaboration, which is one of the best parts about it. But again, I think it's pretty unique to comics. I don't know anyone else that works that way. Now, and what... it, yeah, as, as far as credits go, I mean, that's such a, because you're right about that. It's like, what do we get credited as? You know I mean? We, we don't know. I mean, people are like, like Marvel has me on their website as a co writer but then inside the credits it's listed as dialogue you know because that was part but there's also like a lot of um legal aspects that come into pay and like you know when you credit someone as something officially all these like you know hr gets involved and so we kind of just like i don't know man let's just find something that kind of works and yeah now i I do have to ask a little bit of a question because you know the tradition of the beautiful infusion of eastern ideas into western comics Mm -hmm. goes back you know as as far back as as comics almost at this point you know Mm -hmm. one of the things i really loved now the man is of questionable content these days but frank miller's 70s and 80s work so influenced my understanding of eastern comics so Mm -hmm. so thoroughly you know tori and i share such a a brilliant passion for classic miller and jansen daredevil electra and i know his work on ronin is his work on ronin changed my life you know it, Mm -hmm. it changed how i saw comics and that claremont sought with Miller to create and then later on with 
Sal Buscema, uh, that they sought to create between Wolverine and Kitty Pride and Wolverine, sort of a Japanese allegory through American comics was a really mm-hmm. important thing to me growing up to help me understand things like Sailor Moon, which I loved, but I didn't always understand mm-hmm. exactly. Like there were conventions of Sailor Moon. Tori, something that I really appreciated that you brought to the episodes is a little more understanding of conventions of, of perhaps some of the storytelling modes. And I I know that the story is truly, it reads different than an american comic in so many mm-hmm. ways it mm-hmm. has unique pacing and unique beats in a way that helps me understand the medium a little bit better because mm-hmm. now i can see these differences mm-hmm. i can read the pacing and the stylization and i found it just really transformative as a work in that regard is there some methodology you guys are doing to keep the voice so pure and maybe free of influence of modern comics i mean i think that it's like the methodology is just letting letting us do our job and letting us produce what we want to produce i mean part of that is always once again going to be peach because the pacing in the comic is very traditional to her pacing and i think also even the dialogue of the comic you'll find that because i come from a background of manga translation and so i tend to not be very wordy like an american comic because i tend like my ability my idea of good dialogue has been shaped by manga and so i believe in the very much a less is more um theory of dialogue you know and I think you'll see so I do think you'll see those two influences combining but it's interesting because you know Peach has always primarily wanted to work in American comics I mean there's a reason why I met her at Rose City Comic Con I mean she got on a plane and flew all the way to Portland to Artist Alley in America because those are the comics she wanted to work on she wasn't interested in becoming a manga artist you know working on Japanese manga she wanted to work on American comics so um, she brings that love of American comics which I think is really her, you know, that's her heart and soul more than anything else. I, I bet if you ask Peach, like she would probably love, you know, I don't know, Mystique far more than Sailor Moon, you know, because those are what she fell in love with. And probably in, you know, I mean, in the same way as, as everyone else, you know, you'll have certain Americans that grow up and they fall in love with, you know, Japanese comics. And of course you have Japanese people falling with American comics. Of course you do. And that's really, you know, Peach's background, you know, that's why she came over here. Um, So like, but, but she also carries those cultural standards with her when she's creating her own comics right so it does have that blend but it's it's almost like it, i think peach's art reminds me a lot like be a strange analogy but akira kurosawa is very famous as making the most western japanese films ever made right there's a reason why americans all love kurosawa and it's because he was specifically trying to make american movies and not japanese movies right he was attempting to imitate western pacing western conventions american film styles but he could not take the Japan out of himself. And so you end up with this mixture that is almost more palatable to American readers because it is a it's a fusion that they can recognize. So they can recognize parts of it, but they can also recognize the parts I think that are subtly different as you know as well. So that's my that. answer to that. <laughs> um, I loved your comment though, by the way, about American comics and Japanese comics. Uh, you know, because once again, like I said, you know, they didn't used to have that split, right? And most Japanese comic artists absolutely love American comic artists, right? They study their work, you know, I mean, of course they do. And most American comics artists love Japanese comic artists. You know, there's a mutual admiration society going on there. One of my favorite stories is that uh, when Osamu Tezuka, who is one of the most famous comic artists in all of Japan, he did uh, Astro Boy, he's he's known as the god of manga in Japan. So he came 
over to San Diego Comic Cons as a special guest one year. This was, I think, I forget what it was. It was either, I think it was either early 80s, way, way before my time of ever going to San Diego Comic Con. And the one thing that he wanted, and I know this because I'm friends with his interpreter at the time, Fred Schott, like Tezuka came in, he's like, I'll go, but I get to meet Jack Kirby, right? That was the thing that Tezuka wanted to do more than anything. He's like, I'll come, but I get to meet Jack Kirby. Um, and so Tezuka went over to Kirby's house with Fred Schott acting as their interpreter. Wow. Yeah, because they, once again, they have always, they've, they've always admired each other and they still do. Um, and that's another thing I love about Demon Days. I think it's great. I want more people to understand that the mixture of the two can be something special, that they don't really have, they're not separate swim lanes, you know, they, and they don't have to be separate swim lanes, you know, that if you enjoy comic books, if you enjoy the medium of comics, you know, you should be taking from all of what the medium has to offer rather than just be hyper-focused on one thing. That's actually an amazing story from Jill Thompson as well jill thompson famous uh, artist from the invisible oh, yeah. sandman and i'm i actually have a jill thompson and, hanging in my office and, and piece of burden which is one of my all-time favorite comic series so. yeah and yeah. she's had such an incredible career and mm-hmm. i have a i have a baby morpheus of the little endless hanging in my office by her and i am also a little obsessed with her husband brian azarello and mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm hanging at her table and she's drawing me this morpheus and i said what's the what's the craziest story you never get to tell and mm-hmm. she was like like, you know, I think it would have to be Alex Ross didn't believe in anime and manga. And she just keeps drawing. And I'm like, <laughs> what in God's name do you mean? And she's like, he said that he didn't think they were that different in art form. I mean, they're the same art form, but yeah, they're different. And she's just drawing so casually this whole mm-hmm. time. And she's like, so I made him read some manga. No big deal. And uh, Alex Ross came back up to me and he was like, I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those moments that will never leave me <laughs> it's just jill thompson just being so mm-hmm. chill talking about teaching alex ross how to manga and i was just like this is this is one of those stories it's like it's hearing those two men sitting in a room and if i were your friend the interpreter i think i would have just passed out well let me tell you fred fred Schatz is a legend in his own right he's actually been decorated by the emperor of japan so um he's wow. he's yeah that was a, that was a meeting of three titans not two <laughs> That's yeah. Amazing. but yeah no and i i like i love that story about jill thompson too because i and i encounter that a lot with people when i try to talk and that's you know that's something i talk about all the time too is people are like well i don't really like manga and i don't like the style and i'm like what style manga has thousands of artists and of those thousands of artists they each have a style so when you say what style you're generally it's because you've got this stereotype idea in your head of what manga is and most of those people have done it have never really approached it because the more you read it the more you understand that it's like you know some this person's style like gotanabe style is a hundred percent different from someone like mizuki shigeru style which is just night and day from you know horikushi style i mean there there is no such thing as a manga style per se i love that i love that because i don't know i haven't been on the manga in a while but i used to be a big manga reader mm-hmm. like our, you know japanese comic book reader and i i never really i didn't know i i've seen recently that there's been a riff between the two like you said but i never really considered that I always disliked both and I always got both like i got the mm-hmm. american comics and japanese comics as well and i wanted to ask you i know you've kind of said it already but i mm-hmm. wanted like clear-cut list or maybe for you to explain on it what are some of your favorite like japanese novels that you've like modern and older just like a list if you like can... novels or comics which one? Oh, 
both i guess oh, yeah <laughs> uh, i guess i, I mean, guess I, I guess mostly comics but yeah, yeah i was gonna say i certainly know comics okay more than anything else. I, I just use the word comics all the time yeah. to mean many many i i love the catch-all of comics it's actually one of the interesting things about uh, manga and comics that and this was a surprise to me is that when you like the word manga means something completely different in japanese than it means in english we have basically took the word and we made a new meaning for it manga just means the vast world of comics like if my wife comes out and she sees me in the living room and i'm reading like a 1940s captain marvel adventure comic she'll be like you know put down your manga and go clean the house or something like that that is manga you know <laughs> just the other day when the, the new the suicide movie came out the suicide squad movie came out and i was like hey hey honey do you want to watch the suicide squad she's like well i'm not really in the mood for manga because that is once again from a japanese point of view manga it's all manga um and i tend to use and when you actually go to a japanese bookstore and you go to the comic section of like the manga section of a japanese bookstore they will have a sign up and that sign will say in japanese comics so they mm. actually use the word comics in japanese um for what we use yeah the word manga for so that's always been kind of funny i mean my favorites change on a really like regular basis i'm i tend to like stuff i grew up with which makes me old and i get that but like you know uh matsumoto leiji's uh captain harlock is one of my favorite comics of all time i absolutely adore shizuki mizuki shigeru's work like it is just my heart and soul and i think that of all my contributions to comics i think that my translation of showa history of japan is the one like it will, it will live beyond me it will be you know it's a part of world literature um i really like oh gosh who else do i like i love gotanabe's work if you've ever read um he does these amazing hp lovecraft comics which i honestly think are not only the best hp lovecraft comics ever made i honestly think they are the best hp lovecraft adaptations ever made in any medium really yeah i'm currently obsessed with this comic called midnight diner that i absolutely love and it was there was a netflix tv show that was based off the comic and the comic is just like i love it so much i'm trying so hard to get like whenever i get obsessed with a comic i try to to find some comic company that will publish it for me but i haven't had any success so far but it is just wonderful i mean like other stuff like like i love this comic called outlanders which is long lost to obscurity but outlanders was my very first tattoo so my very first tattoo was an anime girl from this comic called outlanders i love everything by uh, uh, rumiko takahashi like uh, meisana koku is just my absolute dream i love meisana koku i love lum those are both just magnificent 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 comics but again my tastes tend to run old so almost everything i've said here is from either the 80s or the 70s of modern stuff i've been reading a comic called tokyo Haradeba girls which is really fun and what's one of the things that i like about manga and you do find this variety in western comics as well but you just don't find as much variety and part of that's because of marketplace right japan has a vast far more robust marketplace of comics than america does and so comics there can be financially successful that are not would never be financially successful in the united states because they're far too niche. Like, that's one of the things a friend of mine, Adam Warren, will often say is that Adam Warren, he considers Japanese comics to be er comics. Like, they are the, they are what, when you, when you say what actual comics are, that's manga. And then everything else is basically a subcategory of manga because in sheer volume and style and everything like that, that is true. And so Tokyo uh, Tarareba is just basically about three 30-year-old women who have come this far in life and they're suddenly feeling that, you know, they haven't gotten married and, you know, and they're stressed out 
about is basically the stress of approaching middle age and not really being happy where you are in your life and the choices you've made and what you do with that. And it's really funny and it's really comedic and I just absolutely adore it. It's, you know, it's so fun to read, but also has a lot of heart to it. And a lot of people will relate to it in a, you know, in that way that they will also find themselves in their 30s and examining their life. And I think that's a 30s thing to do, right? You get into your 30s as I did, right? I'm 33 and I'm looking at my desk at Amazon and I'm like, is this all I get, right? And so there's an entire comic series about that called Tokyo Tadareba Girls about that feeling of, is this all I get out of life? So I've been really enjoying that. The comic series Delicious in Dungeons, I also absolutely adore. It is hilarious. It is weird. And it is, one again, showcase is one of those things I love about manga. So it's, I don't know if you guys, have you guys heard of this at all? No, Probably not. That's but fine. I'm very interested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Delicious in Dungeons is basically a Dungeons and Dragons themed comic about this group that goes into the dungeon and they run out of food and they killed some monsters and so one of the team members is like could eat the monster and they're all a little bit freaked out on it but then they kill them they kill and cook the monster and they like it and so then the comic becomes basically this food tour of dungeoneering as they go through and kill various monsters (laughs) and they have to like debate with each other about like well they don't want to eat the ones that are too humanish like we don't want to eat orcs because that's kind of gross and like one of my favorite scenes is that they kill a mermaid and um, there's one guy that's super into eating the monsters and there's another person at the party who's like no she's way too human we can't eat the mermaid he's like problem solved takes off his sword chops her in half grabs the tail part it's like well we can eat this then as long as we don't eat the head part and it's, just, it's really funny I so, love that yeah so there's a list of some of my favorites I mean there's just so much to explore I, just, I mean I have a Kindle and one of the great things about the modern age is that you can just I mean you used to be able like, you used to be able to under each Japanese manga you had to like order them and wait months to ship them over and shipping was mm-hmm. insane and now I can literally just go on my Kindle and be like boop, 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 and it's, just, it's great I See, love the modern comics world I've never read a manga on Kindle I don't know how I would feel I've only done paper oh yeah <laughs> I actually yeah. Th- I think it's really suited I think it's actually I think manga on Kindle is actually better than most western comics on Kindle uh, because western comics are often especially western superhero comics often enamored of the double page spread which is awful on Kindle. Like a double page spread is so bad on Kindle. But Japan doesn't really use double page spreads. In fact, yeah. actually, now that I think about it, that's another, I don't think we've ever had a double page spread in Demon Days. And I think that oh, that's yeah. possibly also indicative of that. You know, that big Western idea that you turn the page to BAM is not something that you find so much in manga because each page, you know, it's, just, it's a little smaller, maybe a little like more considered story. Um, although that's not true. If I think about it, like, like big comics like Akira will probably have double page spreads, mm. but it's not, it's not as common because you're not going for grand scale necessary right you're like even in, like in demon days like i don't think our scale is very grand i think that all of the stories are quite intimate you know they're really about the people involved and i think that the most grand scale image we ever got to do was venom inside the temple um you know that was like that was it that was as grand an image as we'll put in all of demon days but we the were rest all was really... pretty nuts about that image yeah yeah that was you like that that was amazing i love venom so yeah <laughs> that but was I... my that I love that image because I got to use it to show, like you can show what each person adds to Demon Days from that, right? So the original picture is just Venom. And then I added the special effects. I'm like, well, there's got to be sound here. So I added the... And then I handed that off to Ariana and she turned my... 
into something phenomenal and which I knew Ariana would do. And I often say that to Ariana. I'm like, I'm just going to put this little note here, do something cool with it. And yeah, so that main image is basically, it's, you could, it's where you can see the partnership of the three people who make Demon Days. That's amazing. Perfect. Thank you so much for telling me about all that manga. Now I'm sure oh, my yeah. fiance is going to hate that, but now I'm going <laughs> to, when this video comes out or the audio and anything, I'm going to rewatch this and write all of it down and go yep. read it because I haven't I, read yeah. anything since like Death Note and Vampire oh, Night, yeah. which is very basic. It's very mainstream, but I loved it. <laughs> I mean, and there's nothing wrong with basic or mainstream. I mean, one of the, one of the greatest things about the world of comic sounds, I truly do it as someone who's been reading comics from the seventies. I truly feel like we are in a comic golden age. I think there's more great comics out now than has, there has ever been in the history of the medium, you know? Uh, and it's just, it's really a question of how much time do I have? And that's the sad part. Cause I don't even get to read all the great comics out there. And, you know, like manga, there's just so much, there's so much to explore. So I highly encourage everyone to just like find something that you think is awesome, you know, find something that works for you or speaks to you. Cause I guarantee there's, there's something out there. So I do have to ask a couple mm-hmm. of silly questions. Do it, Normally yeah. we ask about people in the, you know, we ask our, our writers or creators mm-hmm. to weigh in on the Krakoan age of comics. But, you know, you've, you've stepped away a bit from mm-hmm. X-Men. So yeah. I kind of have to ask. We can a, bring it back. Yeah. Well, I've asked a different, pretty standard, <laughs> you know, if we're mm-hmm. going to switch to anime, I have to know Bulbasaur, Charmander or Squirtle. See, Who's now your you'll, starter? Now you'll get me because I don't play video games at all. Like <laughs> at all. There's, I, there's Pokemon too. manga. The Pokemon manga yeah. is really good, actually. Um, I was... <laughs> Yeah, so I <laughs> I don't play video games, and I almost never watch anime. I am a comics guy through and through. And every time that I feel like I have time to do something, because I I just I don't know, I'm really busy. And anytime I have time that I take to myself, I to me there's no better way to spend that time than comics. And so you know, my, my favorite Pokemon, I've actually got a few hanging around here, is definitely those Jigglypuff. <laughs> <laughs> And as much as I love Jigglypuff, a lot of it has to do, my love of Jigglypuff has to do with the old cartoon from the 90s where they used to do, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but they have these um, these Batman the Animated Series. They used to do these little advertisements. The commercials. The yes. little commercials, right? And my favorite commercial that always cracked me up is like, because they would basically redub the scenes. And so, you know, like Robin's in bed and Batman's there and Robin's like, I can't sleep, Batman. He's like, go to bed. It's like, do it, Batman. And Batman's like, sigh, Yes, I remember. I remember these. Yeah, so that's why I love Jigglypuff. (laughs) That is, there's no better reason to love a Pokemon than Batman openly impersonating it to help his bi child go to sleep. So, exactly. <laughs> I would suggest reading the original Pokemon manga though. It's good. I have I, I have read it. It's been a long time, but I've read I've read a couple volumes of it, I think. Yeah. Okay, but it's cool. been a long time. <laughs> I was gonna ask about Yokai Watch, which is basically Pokemon with Yokai. Right? I know, I know. Oh. I'm such a disappointment sometimes people I realize that <laughs> you want to talk about games and I'm like, I don't play games, you know, sorry. That's absolutely I, fine. Yeah. <laughs> I do actually have a question about translation stuff. Mm-hmm. And my question is about when you have to translate comedy, if mm-hmm. you've ever had to, what is kind of like the process of that? Because I know there's so much that can, oh there's so many differences between mm-hmm. different cultures of what is comedic and what isn't and a lot of stuff. Like, and I would just love to know like what that process 
Uh, it is it is the worst. It is the worst. <laughs> there there is a reason why you see so few com- comedic works in translation, right? You don't see a lot of comedy movies. You don't see a lot of comedy manga because you are spot on, right? Comedy is almost hundred percent linked to verbal and cultural aspects, right? There's very little in comedy that does not rely on one of those two things. And I only did one comedic book. I did, and I, it was kind of funny. So I did I did Panty and Stockings with Garter Belt as my one comedic book I did, and I did it spe- <laughs> I did it specifically because my my editor Carl Horn at Dark Horse because I had just translated Mizuki Shigeru's biography of Adolf Hitler, and he's like, I thought it would be funny to say from the translator of Adolf Hitler of Hitler's biography comes Panty and Stockings with Garter Belt. So it was like that was he just it amused him to to give this comic to me because I had always done these like really like sort of heavy and like sonorous important works you know and so Pan- Penny and Stockings with Garter was my first ability to like sort of move on to that and try and flex a different muscle but I'm like ah oh, it is really hard in fact it is it is almost you you can only do one thing successfully I think which is basically to rewrite it entirely in English because mm-hmm. jokes as written in Japanese are simply not funny in English they are not funny at all um you know like like you know as I as I explained to some of my because the Japanese jokes are often based on puns you know um just like American mm. jokes are and so you know they'll be like my wife and I will just kill each other laughing with jokes like shall we have you know ginger pork tonight and my wife will say alas we have no ginger and that will just crack us up because in <laughs> Japan that is a very funny pun um <laughs> sure right exactly but you translate that into English and it makes no sense nobody's laughing on that and you know and that's one of the things I think that people misunderstand about translation is that when you're when you're doing a translation and once again just to reconfirm that Demon Day is absolutely not a translation because people get confused about that but when you're doing a translation what you do is you translate the emotions not the words like the words themselves like what purpose do words words serve right words exist to transmit ideas and emotions and most of the time when I'm transmitting words and especially as a writer I want to invoke emotions from my reader right so I want you to laugh here I want you to be moved here I want you to be you know scared here or I want you to your heart race to go up here right that's the that's the point that's what the author is trying to get at and whatever words you need to bring to the table to get that emotion then those are the words that you serve you're uh, frankly a bad translator if all you do is translate the words if all you do is look at the words and like says and you take the joke you know shall we have ginger pork for dinner tonight alas we have no ginger like if you put that on the page then you you failed as a translator so what you would try to do is try to figure out something similar you know because what is the situation it's a husband and wife in the kitchen they are telling dorky jokes to make each other laugh and so you think of a dorky joke to, that people would tell and then you just write a brand new joke um, you completely ignore what the author wrote and you know if, if you're good at it you could pull off some pretty clever stuff you know like still maybe make it food related um, make it situational and things like that uh, and that's and that's what actually you'll find that a lot especially on Twitter that a lot of people you know because people will come in with like first year Japanese and then they'll look at this and they'll be like this word is not this word you have made a mistake as a translator and that's a first year Japanese person's approach right I did the same thing when I had a year of Japanese under my belt I was like I know more than the translator because I can clearly see that this word here is not this word they have made a mistake and then the more you grow and the more your skill set evolves you understand that no they've actually not made a mistake they've actually improved the translation you know I think one of the most famous one of those and I got off the humor thing I will say once again that humor is incredible 
incredibly difficult for that reason. One of the most famous translations that really impacted me was in a version of Final Fantasy where the translator Alexander Smith had, had taken the word where in Japanese it said thank you and he had rendered it in English as I love you because that was what the person was actually saying in emotion. They weren't doing the Japanese because Japanese people don't say I love you. They never will come up to you and be like, you know what? I love you, man. You know, or even like look at each other and say I love So they say I love you in very different ways, whereas Americans are not as subtle about that. And so it really just like showed me and then like inspired me to understand how you can take braver choices with your translation to make sure that those emotions are getting across, not simply just word swapping, because translation as an art form is very different than word swapping. Yeah, that's the difference yeah. between translation and interpretation and sort of, you know, the difference between gloss language and diction language mm-hmm. or that, you know, there's that that depth of space between, you know, the direct verbal. It's, it, it's why sign language has no nuance because mm-hmm. it's not a language yeah. for translation. It's a language for interpretation. Sure. And yep. it sounds like a good translator always interprets. Yes. And yes, absolutely. Even then you also realize like one of the things you realize is that a good, tra- you know, not even a good translator, but you are good at things and bad at things, right? I am bad at comedy. I realized that when I did it, I am bad at it. You know, just like any, because translation is essentially writing. So just like some writers are really good at horror and some writers are good at comedy and some writers are good at personal interactions. Like I suck at comedy. And so I don't translate com- comedic manga anymore because I realize I just don't have it. But other people are really good at it and I am envious of their skills. You know, I'm better at other stuff. I think I have it. Like, I think one of my biggest strengths is doing dialogue. I think, you know, I have a good strength of really putting out natural dialogue. And so I really am good at sort of human emotion stuff. Give me two people having a conversation about love and I'm all over that. I'm great at that. But give me jokes and I will kind of die a little bit <laughs> and i'm also pretty good at horror because i've had you know i've had a lot of experience with horror but yeah we all have our strengths we have and some other what people that are really good at comedy they won't find it as hard as i am as hard at it as i do because they mm-hmm. have sort of a natural aptitude for it i think but still on a basic level yeah it is far more difficult far 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 in fact people tried for years to produce these what they call these yonkomi which are these comic strips that are very popular in japan they're basically little four panel strips like if you think of an old newspaper cartoon or something like that Mm -hmm. like peanuts or something like that you know they're four panel gag strips and they simply do not translate well and so they were a failure essentially (laughs) because they just don't translate interesting well speaking of how language gets interpreted and how we and how we learn about things can you talk a little bit about how the the back matter on these issues was created these like glossaries of yeah and like how were they chosen how they come together who was involved i mean that was that was all me that was basically like when i and i've been doing this for years for books so i just one of the things that people find when they hire me on a book is i always want to do more than you actually hire me for and that's just people have to accept that and it's fine i the first time i did the yokai files i did them for and this was actually to serve a very specific purpose well first off i'll say that by my great love Mizuki shigeto he did these yokai comics and he would always do these yokai files in the back and that's what they're called Japanese, Yokai Fairu. And um, I just love them. I think they're great. I think they added so much to the reading experience. So when I started translating uh, Karo for Drawn and Quarterly, I wanted to replicate that. I was like, can we do Yokai files in the back? And they were a little uncertain about it, but I talked them into it and we did it. And it was great. And, you know, like the first reviews were like, oh, we really like the Yokai files. I like them because they serve a couple dual purposes. Like, I loathe translator notes. I absolutely hate them. I hate them so much. I feel that if I have to put a translator note, that I have failed as a translator translator because the original did not have notes at the bottom like the original was a flowing thing that you read through and so the artist did not intend for the reader to stop every few pages to read a 
little note at the bottom, right? That was not so. So if I put a translator note, I'm failing the artist's intent um, is sort of how I view it. I, I've not done my job. So what I would do is I would then like, but I, one of the ways that I make up for that is with back matter pieces, right? Because you can like write little back matter pieces on various yokai and things like that. And that way you don't have to put in little translator notes throughout the thing. And so I did that on Kitaro. And then the next comic that I did, well, I talked about earlier with Sub is I did uh, Wayward. And so one of the first things when Jim hired me on Wayward, I'm like, can I do yokai files? He's like, sure, why not? It's, you know, it's our own little book. We could do whatever we want here. There's no one to tell us we can't. That was also a funny thing because Jim like actually, because we didn't know each other. I mean, now Jim and I are very good friends, but when, uh, when we first met, you know, we didn't know each other at all. We'd only just communicated by email. And he's like, I'd like to hire you for one issue to do this one thing. And I was like, that's an excellent thing. I will take your offer to work on this series for the entirety of it. And I will also do all of these other things too. So I did the yokai files for Wayward. And then when it came to Demon Days, I was like, well, can we do yokai files? You know, can we do it? Like, can we add a little back banner into it? And, you know, Lindsay, our editor was fine with it. And Peach thought it was a great idea. And Peach loved it too, because it got her, that gave her the chance to draw the traditional version of the yokai. So she really liked that a lot. And that was a lot of fun. So yeah, the yokai files are just pretty much, they something I brought to it because I thought it would be fun. It's, they actually like, they, every Marvel comic, I didn't know this at the time, but they have like a certain overage page count that you can use if you want to. And if you don't use it, they fill it in with house ads. And so I was like, well, I'm going to steal your house ad space and then put in yokai files. Nice. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. But I love those. I mean, they just, you know, it was just an idea I had. And, and it's been so great working with our editor and our team at Marvel because I don't think they've ever said no to an idea. I mean, it's just been absolute bliss, you know? And I think also part of it was because it was a book that was just not really on anyone's radar. I mean, when Peach and I were first putting it out, it was expected to be, you know, who knows? We thought it was probably just going to not do anything. It was just going to go out. It was just going to flip and maybe no one would care. I mean, you can't really tell in the modern comics market until it gets into people's hands that people would like this little oddball thing. And also non-continuity books tend to not be popular. You know, people don't care because it doesn't matter what happens in them, right? Um, and so, so they let us get away with a lot more than maybe they would have with a normal book because we were just so off everyone's radar that we were allowed to do everything. And it was just great. And I mean, I've like, even like the Yokai Files, like I've always loved things like that. I think that actually modern comics really miss out on those old opportunities. Cause like when I would read the X-Men, you know, in my day, or even like they always used to have the backup character profiles and things like that, you know, and they'd usually have a guest artist do it. And they were so cool. You know, I just, and those also always encouraged me to want to read other things. So you like, you know, first appearance, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I got to check that out, you know? So that's just also my old school comics love coming in. But I mean, it was like, I, yeah, I assume we're much more on people's radar now than we were when we first started, but it's too late. So <laughs> people like us. <laughs> Nice. I do want to say I bought the first volume of Wayward a while ago oh, awesome. and it's been on my list to mm -hmm. read and I'm ashamed that I haven't read it yet and I'm going to move it back up because I love Jim Zubs and yeah. I saw that and I was like I've never read this I need to read it yeah it's, so, a, it's a magnificent series I yeah. really love it and I didn't know you were on there so now I'm like I even because I didn't like look at all the I haven't read it yet so I didn't look at all the credits and I was like ah oh, now I need to read even more yep. you do <laughs> you do yeah 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 Wayward's super fun and Jim's like I mean I don't know 
know, that's, that's one of the other things where I talk about like with networking is like, once again, find people that are your level that are coming up with yourselves because, you know, then you get to have this circle of friends. For, I mean, I actually, I play role playing games with Jim every, uh, every Wednesday night on Zoom. We've got a, we've got a comic <laughs> creator, um, role playing club that we, that's that amazing. we play with. Yeah. It's that's, that is everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. It's super fun. Back in. To <laughs> start I, with some. I just wanted to ask this one question. I ask every mm-hmm. person that I'm, I'm able to interview. Since you're at Marvel now, and mm-hmm. you said you like want to write more of just like your own stories and love all these mm-hmm. like more off-brand type type of characters. If they could give you a choice of one of your like favorite like kind of quote-unquote off-brand type of characters, which one would you want to oh, write? Jeez, that's a tough question, especially with Marvel characters specifically. You know, my favorite. Favorite Marvel character is Kitty Pride, and I don't know that I would write her very well, um, but <laughs> she is my absolute favorite. I think if I really got to pick what I like, but she's hardly off-brand anymore. But I think if I could pick one person, and this was a character, I don't even know if he's in current continuity or not, because that's how far I'm out of it. But uh, this one of my favorite characters as a kid, he only appeared in three issues, but he was Cal Rankin the Mimic. And I absolutely mm. love, <laughs> I love so. the Mimic so much so So. mimic came back he came back oh yeah and then he died again and then he came back again and Uh then he died again and then he came back again as part of a thing called the dark x-men and he worked with mystique and that was cool and now i think he's just sort of limboing around but okay okay. mimic mimic's a motherfucker i'm with you yeah i love mimic mimic was always (laughs) one of my favorites yeah so ask me some x-men questions come on bring on some x-men questions okay well then (laughs) it's x-men time um you know you said that you stopped around 300 right i I, i'm guessing i think i let it go for a long time because i had a pull box and i i they started piling up and i realized i just wasn't even reading them anymore you know and it was just like i was buying them out of habit because i have an almost unbroken run of x-men one through whenever i stopped right so um probably around 300 and random number like 347 or something like that i forget exactly what it was but yeah then magneto good Uh guy or bad guy Uh oh that's a quick see i like magneto much better as a bad guy i think oh, that oh yeah no i, 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 kind, over. Of, I, I kind of agree i do <laughs> i love magneto as as a sort of like sympathetic bad guy but i still want him to be bad right like Torture i love good guy him. what's that tortured no, no, good no, guy no 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 <laughs> magneto is a bad guy all right. absolutely all the yeah, all the way like my you know my favorite magneto is just yeah someone who you you respect but is still at the end of the day magneto's got to be evil magneto would kill people who stood in his way if he thought it was the right thing to do that's oh, i, I agree with that. yeah yeah, yeah. I, I have to agree i feel like like the x-men fandom is probably going to come for me but i exactly agree i've always liked magneto when he was more like kind of like a doom type character mm-hmm. where like everyone respected him but like no one wanted to approach him because he's so powerful and knowledgeable mm-hmm. and everything yeah almost like you know almost like a fan of the opera type guy too mm-hmm. you know where he's just like you know he's immensely powerful and terrifying and you know yeah but like i love like his issue i mean this is getting really old but like that's all i know but like his x-men 150 like around those runs like the old magneto and the savage land part i absolutely 
absolutely love. Um, I think I just think he's a better villain. Merryweather, right? That's good stuff. And I think that it that that's an unfortunate part when you've got a really classic villain. The idea is to then you know eventually they become a good guy, and then you got to refine a new villain. And the new villain is often a mediocre substitute. I have to say, you know, when you find a good villain, let them be a villain. <laughs> I would love to know if you have a least favorite X-Men member. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, my least favorite X-Men, and I will say one of the ones that really just made... And I, I'm going to offend someone, because that's the way it works with X-Men. You know, like, yes. You know, <laughs> there's no way to talk See X-Men somebody without... I like. Yeah, without absolutely getting someone pissed off. But um, it would be Maggot. Like, I just absolutely hated Maggot. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. A lot of people don't like oh. him, so I understand. Maggot I, was so bad. I like Maggot too. I think, but you, but Zach has no, no. But Zach hasn't read Maggot in a long time. Maggot's come far. Okay, Maggot's come far. And who was the who was the woman who pulled the bones out of her body? Marrow, Marrow. Okay, Marrow. That was it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I hated them. Oh, they're so far. I love gossip about people I don't know. (laughs) Marrow's come farther too, but she's not my favorite. But she has come farther if my question would be if you could like i'm gonna i'm just gonna mm-hmm. say five yeah if you could pick an x-men team like mm-hmm. the team you want oh, on yeah. the x-men team five members i'll make it easy oh, who would you pick god that's tough. i know I've, <laughs> I've actually answered the same question on twitter and it like killed me because i had to like figure it out forever and just like oh god i mean because like there's my classic x-men who are to me are always like the x-men and like i have like like kitty pride and colossus are just my two favorites i just love them you know they were the ones that i grew up with and you know absolutely adore so they get to go on there then i would have nightcrawler on because he's probably my third favorite because he's awesome and i want to say the mimic also except for they would he would now know when to mimic so he'd kind of suck you know he kind of works better with a broader team for the guys they're fighting he can just mimic whoever they're fighting you know he can be like i'm the scarlet witch now eyelash i'm the scarlet witch now your hair falls out (laughs) and i think you know as as non-exciting as it is because he's a character that i don't really i don't really love solo but i love him on a team would on the x-men would be wolverine because i think wolverine mm. as a member of the x-men is just i think he's a great x-men i don't really like i hate him as an avenger like to this day i refuse to believe that either spider-man or X- or wolverine are avengers that just offends me like they just shouldn't be <laughs> i know right i know i get that yeah i just it just offends me it's like spider-man and wolverine are not avengers they can't be avengers and like i said i think honestly i think that's why we're in the golden age of comics because you actually do get it all and that's the best thing is that we have an immense buffet of options of which you can select and if you're you know and and not only that but not only the comics out now but we have more access to older comics than ever in the history of comics oh yeah find the era that appeals to you and read that era and you know and if this current era doesn't appeal to your current run there's still lots and lots of good stuff there you know and i think you know hopefully some of that old aspect of it because i think demon days also sort of suits that you know there's a sort of like innocence to it and a sort of like just you know emotionalness to it that i think that we also is something we bring and it's nice to see that readers are still responding to that well i can't think of a better thing to go out on zach this was the most <laughs> amazing interview thank you for all of these amazing inside <laughs> stories and for this amount of process
process and understanding of not just what the book is, but how the book gets made, which makes me feel like I can appreciate it even more. Now, I, our audience needs to know where they can find you because I'm sure everybody's going to mm-hmm. want to follow you after they get to hear this. So where can everybody find you online? So I am um, very vain. And so everything is just my name. So Zach Davison at Twitter. Twitter is just at Zach Davison. Website is ZachDavison.com. Um, it's pretty easy to find me. So that's about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you guys are going to love Curse Web. Oh, it is so good. I just, I wish we could get it in people's hands right now. The waiting is really hard because, and when you read Curse Web, I, there's going to be a couple of scenes where you're like, oh, now I know what he was talking about. I cannot <laughs> wait. And I know our audience can. And until then, you guys can pick up what is it on printing 74? And are there 96 covers of each issue oh at this my point? God. It is insane. Yeah, it is crazy, crazy, crazy. So, guys, please go out and support Zach and Peach and Ariana's amazing vision for a very different take on the X-Men because I can tell you this team is obsessed with it. Hey everybody, Nico here again, and I love listening to people talk about Hellions. The reactions this book gets from our crew is so fantastic, and getting to edit it is such a pleasure. In this next segment, the team goes on for almost an hour about the incredible intricacies of the universe Zeb Wells has set up with talented artist after talented artist and the ways in which the sort of fill-in issues that the Locus File represent are so fantastic in the scope of what Hellions has come to mean to the X line. It's sort of that dark figure looming in the distance, and it turns out even that dark figure looming in the distance has their own boogeyman. We hope you guys enjoy this next segment, and don't forget, guys, we love making this show for you twice a week, every week, and if you want more of our content, you can check us out over on YouTube and Twitter at X's for Podcast. I've been Nico Action, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and until next time, guys, keep those mutant lights lit, keep those Krakoan gateways open, and guys, we'll see ya. And welcome back to X's for Podcasts. I'm one of your co-hosts, Arturo, and you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Hello, I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. You can find me on Twitch, Twitter, Instagram. Come on over, start a conversation with me. Trust me, I can talk forever. Hi, everyone. I'm Broadway. You can find me on Twitter at BWAY3RD. That's B-W-A-Y-3-R-D. Hey, everyone. This is Dante, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram under Inferno Magic, and that is magic with a K. I am Wanchen. You can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa, and glad to be here. And today we are covering Hellions 14, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Jorge Antonio, color by Rain Barreto, and letters by friend of the pod, VC's Ariana Mare. We open in Medias Riss, in the midst of a council meeting of the Great Ring of Araco, joined by the Regent of Soul and newest member of the council, Storm. After some back and forth, Tarn the Uncaring promises to leave Krakoa alone, but in short order, that fallen woman fate again makes a liar of him. So let's get into it, you guys. We've got clones, shenanigans, we've got a Rocky, we've got council meetings. There was a lot to sink your teeth into in this issue. And Zeb Walls just continues to deliver and go above and beyond and I think exceed every reader's expectations. I think this is well-deserved as a, a current fan favorite, this, this series. And issue 14 is, is no exception. 
who wants to get us started? Raven, how was how did how did this make you feel? I honestly loved it. And it was kind of nice seeing the setup of the Ring of Araco. So you actually got to see some of the council members and um, kind of how they played into each other and how well they respected each other. That was a really big issue that I'm beginning to have with the Quiet Council is <laughs> there's respect, but it only tends to go one way amongst certain people. So this was a very interesting look at it and when it gets into the hijinks it gets even better so yeah I, I loved I loved the entire setup I enjoyed the living daylights out of this issue I noticed though we were missing some council members it, it seemed like we got a little you know a little more glimpse at some of our new faves from Planet Sized X-Men Sabunar of the Depths Zelo Ulatuka the Seer but we didn't really encounter too many new Iraqis so I thought that was that was interesting. Well, I, I think it's kind of good though that they they stuck with some ones that, that we've already seen. We you know we have respect for it because you know we know what they've done. So. I'm sort of happy with that. Yeah, I'm really happy to see familiar characters as well. So much of what you both have said resonates so much with me. At one point, I kind of felt like after X of Swords, we had this whole big thing with uh, these Iraqi mutants, right? And it felt, for some reason, it felt to me like we got introduced all, to all these characters and then they weren't getting used. And now I'm realizing that they're actually being kind of woven into stories here and there. So it's almost, in a lot of ways, kind of a subtle use of all these new characters. So, and the ones that you've mentioned that are on this, you know, the, the Iraqi version of the Quiet Council are definitely some of my favorites. So I'm hoping that we will continue to see more of them because they're just great designs, really interesting characters. Yeah, part of it felt almost like Zeb said, let me use the ones that we have introduced. I'm not going to make this issue about introducing new characters. I don't want to, you know, shortchange them. They're, they're a spotlight. We don't need them right now. We're moving this story along. And I think they, you know, he, he does that in a, in a beautiful way. It was interesting to see Tarn back in the mix and a reminder that Tarn is, you know, not just the, the adversary that F this team up, you know, during Ten of Swords, but also a respected member of the council. So I love the fact that he very much stuck to how they first presented him as being this zealot, this fanatic, this kind of over-the-top uh, figure who is very much a narcissist. And of course, the moment they have found somebody who has wronged them, who has stolen from them, I'm like, girl, you more drama than Mr. Sinister is. That's hard to do. But yeah, like... I like the fact that they very much kept to his character and like expanded on how dedicated and how zealous and how fucking creepy he and his followers are. Um, is it bad that I'm obsessed and have like a little bit of a crush on Tarn? Yes. <laughs> no, it's not bad at all. It's not bad at all. I mean, hell, if if I can have a slight crush on Mr. Sinister and all of his clones. Hey, I, I feel like Tarn is just an amenthi version of Sinister. Like, they kind of set those two up as counterbalances. So, you know, I, I, I respect it. There's, there's, this is a safe space. You can bring your embarrassing crushes here. <laughs> <laughs> you say yeah, that think, now. <laughs> something that really spoke to me about Tarn is like how he speaks. Mm -hmm. Like... Sinister has become very camp, but, but Tarn, like, very formal, very poetic, sort of. And I mm -hmm. think it lends some sort of epicness to his character and, and makes him even more threatening. Like, whenever he says something, like, you feel it. I don't know. And I thought it was very cool how... Well, and also the devotion of his followers. 
yeah, like they're completely loyal. And I think, I don't know how he speaks, just, oh man, it's, it's great. Really spoke to me how, you know, how he says things. It's really cool. Yeah, I agree. I think um, what I also appreciate about the sort of parallels between Sinister and Tarn is that Tarn kind of represents a classic Mr. Sinister with the Marauders, where he's like very kind of ooky spooky versus the sort of modern, you know, sassy Sinister archetype. And I think that even just the way in which Tarn relates to the Locust Vile is far more Mr. Sinister with the Marauders than Mr. Sinister with the Hellions. And I think that, not that I expect robust character growth from Mr. Sinister, but I think one thing he's going to have to face is that like he can't treat the Hellions like the Marauders, because clearly the shit is blowing up in his face. Well, and Tarn showed them the truth. Which, which brings us to like the crux of the issue. Like, like that that okay so yeah let's get into it so we we were talking about the you know the council on on Araco and then we get to the credits and next thing you know again in Meteor's Rest like we jump in in the midst of a scene already you know already in progress so to say and now the Locust Vile has shown up not just on Krakoa they are at Bar Sinister ready to fuck some shit up and mm-hmm. we get a, a standoff with the Hellions. The Hellions are like, wait, what? Who are these people? Because their their interaction with them was mm-hmm. in their, you know, memory backup, you know, gap. So that was really interesting. We know that we know that those chickens were coming home to roost at some point. I don't think anybody really expected it to be this confrontational. Tarn showed up with his very devoted followers and they brought the receipts. They brought the receipts and telepathically popped it into everybody's head just to be clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, holy crap. What what he... <laughs> them showing up was just holy shit because it jumped straight past Krakoa's gate. It went straight to Bar Sinister. So it's, it's not like, oh, yeah, we're just going to slowly walk through and, and do this diplomatically. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Surgical precision strike. We show up where we need to be. And you could see Sinister immediately start shitting bricks because a he's got a lot to explain but b piper is going to get paid and it was the other sinister (laughs) that i think kind of led them to him so yeah there there's a there's a lot of sinister is going to end up strung up i'm pretty sure he's gonna end up gilded is what they say this is true yeah (laughs) this is very true but the question is which sinister because i Worth mentioning, at this point of the story, we currently have two Sinisters. We've got Sinister and we've got the Sinister clone who went to a month, was tortured. Oh, and I guess that's how, is that how the Tarn's children or whatever Tarn's team showed up there so easily because they were following the Sinister clone? Is that what we're led so. to believe? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think they either followed the Sinister clone. I think, I think, uh, Bird. Sickbird and um, Mother Rapture, Mother Rapture, yeah, were Mother Rapture's out bladefish. on the hunt, yeah. And wherever her bladefish are, they they pass through reality. So they were he was able to bypass any need for a gate or anything like that because that's where her fish were. She's on one side, fish was on the other side. Tarn was holding it, and he basically just walks on through. Uh, okay, that okay. We we I, I would like to do a dramatic recreation of that moment. 
because that was so wonderful. So she says, this is a holy thing you see, the blade fish despoil reality itself. Empath interjects with, this is hot. <laughs> and Havoc tells him, shut up, Empath. <laughs> so, and so you're working. And yeah, I mean, to his credit, Zeb Wells does not let up on his like comedic skill, not even for a little bit. And she <laughs> says, and so your world will know the reaming touch of Tarn. Come, witness the birth of your uncaring God. Witness the birth of Tarn. Tarn rips through reality and says, where the blade fish go, I may follow. And she replies, praise Tarn. And in the very next panel, Nanny <laughs> responds for all of us and says, fuck Tarn. And leads the charge to beat his ass. Dude, that little uh, green egg is going ham. Love, I fucking love her. Love, love. I love this. this. Everything about this is ridiculous. I'm <laughs> loving what Zeb Wells is doing. I feel like these characters, Locus Vile is a promise with their introduction that is actually paying out tenfold. You know, I feel like we've seen a lot of their characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm going to use the example of Solemn. We were promised, you know, X, X number of things were going to happen with Solemn. Solemn's this new big bad for Wolverine. We haven't really seen that yet. Like, there, there was a promise made that we haven't really felt. But with the mm -hmm. Locust Vile, like, they came in with, they came in swinging with a bang. Like, this shit is hilarious. And I love it. Yeah, I think, I love how then she go like, fuck Tarn, and then she's like... <laughs> She's just eating off to, to <laughs> Oh yeah, no, she got humpty dumptied. She totally got humpty dumptied. <laughs> Knock straight the fuck up off that wall. That egg went ham. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that little green egg went ham. And then she got humpty dumptied, so Yeah, I mean Nanny continues. One thing I love about the reintroduction of the locust vial is that um, so I have the, I just like happen to have had it like at, at my desk at work. I have the Ten of Swords hardcover. And when you watch them fight the Locust Vile, they get wrecked. And like the first mm -hmm. one to go is Nanny. And I want to say whichever one shoots lasers is the one that like mercs her. And he is the first Havoc one to attack her. Havoc loses two hands. And she, Havoc loses both his hands. And like, I don't know. There's something cool about the fact that like, like Nanny, Orphan Maker, and wild child like fuck up the exact counterparts that fucked them up last time like orphan oh, maker getting his yeah. like arms ripped off and then like this time he's like yo have a grenade right <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do grenades get nullified no oh God, go, hmm. on, go on i didn't catch that parallel wait so wait who does who does oh yeah fuck up and and so... so the one that has the like laser arm i can't remember his uh, name i think it's right uh mudraker yeah, Mudgear the Recanter. Mudgear, thank you, Mudgear. And so, like, that's who shoots Nanny sitting on top of pr poor Princess Silkbean, <laughs> the hero of Krakoa. <laughs> um, and then this time she like gouges his eyes out. Like, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and oh, Wild Child yes, went after. Yes. Um, was it oh God, the, the guy with the shoulder pauldron. Uh, Hex Butcher. Hex Butcher, thank you. And Sick yeah. and Hex Butcher are the ones that, like, wreck Wild Child the last time. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, fucking Orphan Maker goes straight for Sick Bird and uh, for Mother Rapture. And then yeah. goes, you know what, fuck it, we're going straight 
at Amino, because Amino, I think, crushed him in the left? Yeah, took his arms straight the frick off, and then proceeded to try and eat them, which is like, no, he's not supposed to eat! I remember that part of that. So yeah, he went, screw it, blow your arm off. It's what the um the data page is about. Yeah, the exactly. next page after exactly. after Nani uh, gouges the eyes out. <laughs> like it says in the last paragraph that Nani and the friends remember somehow how they died. Mm -hmm. and that's why they they return from the dead improved, you know, to to kill the locus vile. Mm -hmm. Well, at least until turned to their powers away. I wonder if that will, if they get resurrected after they've been depowered, will they come back even stronger yet again? I mean, who knows, but like know. props to Zeb Wells for going into Ten of Swords, the rules, like the lay of the land that we understood was do not die in other world lest your resurrection protocols get jacked up and you come back unrecognizable. I think we've seen some mixed results with that. We've got Rockslide as a baby, and that's, you know, that's a whole thing. Then we've got Gorgon kind of back, and he just seems like Gorgon minus whatever small personality he, he had. So that's a little bit off. But I got to give credit for Hellions doing the most interesting thing. And I just, I love that we're seeing it put in this lens where, and thanks for like pointing all that out, Broadway. I didn't, I didn't even get that. That's said in the, in the, in the data page, but it is really interesting to see it on the panel that they're instinctively gunning for those who harm them. You know, a beautiful, beautiful beat for this story. And I think it just, you know, enriches the characters on, on both sides of the fight. And you know, in all this talk, we've missed the most important part of the issue, which is Chimera. Oh! Are we saying the word? Yes! And the Sinister is going to show Chimera. We've been waiting two years for Chimera. If you're, if you're listening at home, take a drink because we just said the magic word, Chimera. Yes! Chimera is the one thing that I have been more excited about than probably anything else. I, I, I almost screamed when, when Sinister said that. Yes. Wait, wait, yeah, wait. This, this I'm, I'm, like... I'm, I'm missing something. Somebody explain. Quanto? So you remember back oh. in, in oh. Powers of Ten, so that Mars became a breeding pit for chimeras. And I think Silobel was one of the failed experiments that ended up hunting mutants. And I think Powers of Ten, like three or four, I don't remember. But we know that Sinister had breeding pits in Mars that made chimeras, like Rasputin Four and Cardinal and North, and that weird Doc Krakoa at some Powers of Ten. So I think this is the first time we've seen Chimera, and also in Marvel 1000, I think, it was, we saw this place that Sinister is taking the other Sinister, and he had a holograph of, I think, Franklin? Yeah. yeah. And some other person. We know that Franklin's fucks a lot, but yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to get into the Franklin Richards of it all, but yeah, like the Chimera in the data pages, they lay out that like the first generation of Chimera were essentially clones, right? Like they were modeled after like the DNA of, of others. And then with subsequent generations, they started blending the powers. There was one generation that, that Juancho alluded to that was essentially defective. So yeah, I mean, I've been waiting for a basically house and powers kind of like prequel. Like I want to get into that that timeline of Moira's life. I'm not sure which which of her lives that was. And dig into kind of like the prequel of North and Cardinal and Rasputin the Fourth 
you know, and like how they came to be. But until we get that, this like dropping chimera here is huge because we know now that in this lifetime, which is I think presumably Moira Tenth's life, Sinister's slightly ahead of schedule because he already has Sinister clones. And he had Sinister clones from the moment Xavier and, and Charles went to speak to him and basically recruit him slash brainwash him into working for them. He already had like legions of sinister clones. Obviously in this issue we've we're already dealing with one of his one of his specific clones. But this like Chimera farm is the first inkling that we might get more than just sinister clones. We might start getting a new generation of mutants and I could not be more excited about that. Yeah, I, the Chimeras are super fascinating to me for a couple of reasons because one, it's important to note that like the third generation are the ones with the cardinals. So like those had I'm I'm like pulling this from the wiki right now because I don't have House and Powers in front of me, but those had a 10% failure rate which resulted in the Cardinals. And then the fourth generation was intentionally sabotaged by Mr. Sinister for the man-machine like supremacy. And so the fact that he's building them now, and he is noted in one of the Sinister Secrets that the clone, like it, it's not explicitly stated, but it's suggested that the Sinister that was like brainwashed by Xavier isn't the one that's on the council. So Sinister is up to something that is like going to be long term and a problem. And I don't know. I mean, it's it's very stressful because you don't know who knows what. Like, who on the island knows that he's doing this? And why hasn't anyone stopped him? Another part that's very interesting with Arturo, what he said about Sinister being ahead of schedule, is that Nimrod is also ahead of schedule. Yes. So we have both the Chimeras ahead of schedule. We have Nimrod ahead of schedule. And I think all of that will lead into Inferno somehow. Because Moira is getting desperate. Because Moira knows about the Chimeras. And presumably... Xavier and Magneto know as well. So there's going to be some moves made about Sinister soon, I think. And we we know that Moira's been hiding out during this entire era. She's been in, in her no space, basically just reading, you know, all of Destiny's diaries. So, yeah, I mean, Inferno is probably like the most exciting thing since House and Powers. I know Ten of Swords was was awesome and it was a, a big event, but this Inferno feels like it's going to be another huge milestone in this era. And it feels like it's going to be a bit of a turning point. And we're going to see, you know, one thing that we've learned from Moira's lives is although they're all different, there is, there's insights that can be gleaned from each one going into the next so yeah, it's just, I'm so excited that we're starting to build that framework. Like I do not want to rush us to get to a confrontation with Nimrod, but I am so excited to see all of these different, uh, you know, plots developing and, and not just, you know, not just being red herrings. I've got a, I've got a little bit of PTSD from red herrings in cable. Check out our coverage of cable for more information about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hear you on that one. But no, I like no Tino shade to um the Excess Swords, but it felt like that was like a centralized event that was specifically for mutant kind. Whereas Inferno in many ways feels like it has a there there's gonna be a lot of, of, of possible uh backlash or outcome for the universe, not just for you know Krakoa and and Arako, because honestly that's what Excess Swords felt like. But yeah, no, it feels like this has far reaching ramifications when it comes to Inferno 
Inferno. So yeah, again, I, I again loved X Swords, but yeah, like it feels like all ah, I feel so repetitive. Sorry, it feels like the events that have happened over the last couple of years are all tying back into a much larger cycle. So I think Inferno coming up is going to have so much like weight as far as the long run goes. I hope that made sense. <laughs> no, and also it speaks to how the lines working. I know we. All- Yesterday's news about, you know, creators leaving over to other platforms and all that made all of us a bit scared about, you know, Hickman leaving or whatever. But I think it speaks to the strength of, of the X office that, like, almost every book feels essential to the, like, the whole picture. I mean, Hellions, when, when we got the first solicits for Hellions, I thought it was going to be like a joke book, you know, make these misfits go on fun adventures and, and, you know, whatever. But it's become really crucial to the whole thing with focusing on Sinister and what he's doing and introducing like real characters from a month that other books haven't or haven't yet and i think it's set it it's setting up so much you can do so much here with with the locust vial with a council i mean the Araco council in mars and yeah it speaks to how strong the line is and the confidence that both the creators and the readers have in in this line you know that, that seb that helen's is not a flagship book and it's still you know super important to to the line and i think that's that's pretty awesome i have to agree i feel like hellion continues to deliver i had the lowest expectations of this book and it just like it kicks my ass at how good it is consistently and like yeah the, i mean especially with the reveal nope. of the chimeras everything that sinister is doing using these different characters that we may not have cared about but now we're kind of love like they're just they're doing so much good stuff in this book to make it an important piece of what's happening in the x line i i completely agree with juancho like i can't imagine not reading this book yeah, I, I've always said that Hellions felt like Hellions to me has always felt like kind of the suicide squad of of the Krakoan era. <laughs> and much yeah. like the new suicide <laughs> squad movie, it surprised and delights me in ways that like I never could have imagined. Like it's got heart, it's got, you know, character development. Like I love this ragtag group of misfits. And yeah, I just I, I I wasn't I wasn't quite prepared for that. I was kind of like when I remember when they were do you guys remember they uh as they were announcing the lineup for this character th- this book it was like silhouettes and they were revealing one character day a day and it was yeah. like what who empath what? I was like, really? okay, Mon. Like, just, yeah, yeah. I was literally pissed. felt like Suicide Squad. Like, oh, there's poke, poke Why dog. are you using Nanny? <laughs> I was legit upset. I was like, why are these characters? There are so many good characters out there. And now, like, I'm eating my words because, damn, do I look forward to reading about Nanny all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I get so something. excited. Every time that a new Hellions is coming out, I'm just like stoked like that's the first thing i read in the morning is hellions like it's just it's just the best wancho go i'm sorry yeah, what were you saying wancho yeah i remember that i was you know going through the solicits i think like two or three months before the first issue it was like i don't know i i only know alex i, I don't and psylocke I, I don't know anyone else mm-hmm. and i'm gonna i i'll try the first two three issues see where, see where it goes <laughs> and and now that hickman's you know left uh, the x-men book the main book Hellions was just a very close number two, and it's jumped up to number one after I believe it was gonna be like yeah two or three issues, then I drop it, and now I can get enough. I want more <laughs> of it all the time. Okay, I have a question for everybody. 
All right. I, I, here's my question for all of you. Uh, since we, we kind of talked about how this is like the Suicide Squad, who is the Harley Quinn? <laughs> is it Nanny? I'd say Sinister. Goddamn, he can seem to get out of fucking anything. <laughs> yes. Sinister. It's yeah. totally sinister. It's, but he's like the irredeemable Harley. You're just like, ugh. Maybe it's Sinister. I'm going to say Sinister, but yeah, Sinister's sinister. like he yeah. wants. Yeah, right. It's like it's like Sinister is the amalgam of um, uh, Amanda Waller and Harley Quinn, right? Like that's kind of the, his position mm-hmm. and his kind of drag aesthetic. <laughs> um, I'm gonna go and be chaotic and say that I think that the the Harley Quinns are for different reasons: Orphan Maker and Empath. <laughs> Orphan Maker embodies like the joy of Harley Quinn, but Empath embodies the chaotic nature of Harley Quinn. Where like he's unreliable and has categorically undermined the team on multiple occasions. I dig You're that. Not wrong. I dig that answer. You're not wrong. And he's good at violence. And he's good at violence. He's he's effective. Yes. But the only thing is that Empath is an awful person and Harley's not awful. Not that awful. <laughs> they both have robust mental health problems, is, is all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, only Very one of them leans problems. into it. <laughs> Very different problems, but um, they're both unwell. So, again, as I said before, I have like the Ten of Swords hardcover here. And one thing that I went back and looked at was the was X-Men number 14, where Genesis is telling Apocalypse about like what happened in Araka. And one of the things back to that like sinister Tarn like parallel. So like before the fall of Araka and uh, when Genesis goes to fight Annihilation, she discovers that a lot of the mutants that ran when they arrived have been like bred with the demons of Amenth, sort of creating in a way chimeras, right? Like it's not the exact same thing, but it's in the similar vein. And then they use some of those against Araco, kind of similar to the hounds like Silobel, right? So like they use like the Omnipaths, which Tarn says he is. I don't know if he's the only one, but they use them to like expose people and also like suppress their mutant powers so that there's no uprisings. And something that's mentioned by Zelo is the Abyssal Prisons, which were made by like the summoners of Amenth and Araco. Like he says something about it at the beginning of the issue but I don't think we ever really really get much before that but like as we were saying before there's all these things that have been sort of seeded about Amenth which I think will come back in a big way later but all of these things have been sort of seeded and it's nice that Hellions which seems like such an odd book on the surface is the one sort of pulling those up Broadway I have a question since you have a Ten of Swords book yeah 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 um, I'm struggling to remember how Sinister learned of the Locust Vile. Is that on the book? Or it's just like they stumbled upon them purely out of luck? So it looks like they sort of stumble upon them, but it's not entirely clear. Like, I think they just stumble upon Tarn, but it seems that Sinister's whole thing was like, I'm just gonna go and, like, snag some mutants. But it's not clear that he knows that, like, the Locust Vile are gonna be there. But I would be curious as to how much he knew going into Araka. Because it seems like a kind of wild thing to do. Obviously, he didn't really have a choice. Like, the council made him. But it seems like a wild thing to do to just be like, let's go to this, like, other dimension 
with the other Krakoa and just steal some shit. Like, that seems kind of insane. Well, he had posited to the Quiet Council that he should take the Hellions to um, Arako and get a couple of their swords that were meant for the tournament so that they could basically DQ the other team before even having to fight. He, on the other hand, made sure that he took long enough and went in the back door so that they could grab DNA samples from what they supposed were just going to be a couple of easy mutants to kind of, you know, hey, we're going to take some DNA, do-do-do, I'm going to take some DNA, do-do-do. He did not expect at all to run into Tarn the Uncaring and his Locust Vile. And when they did, they just started handing out the ass-whooping really in short fashion. And so the DNA that Sinister had grabbed, they made the hasty retreat, and he made sure that everybody that was on that mission died, and that he was the only one with the payload. So yeah, he used little nano mosquitoes to grab, uh, to grab the samples. But yeah, no, I don't, I don't think he knew Tarn the Uncaring and the Locust File were going to be there. All he cared about was getting uh, DNA samples because he noticed how strong, how powerful, but also how, um, how limited the DNA gene pool was so he thought of it as when you breed purebred dogs and you kind of you get all the better traits that you're looking for well you also get some of the bad ones but you know so yeah he was looking for those refined traits because he saw how many of the Iraqo mutants were just freaking amazing and really you know high powered and all that kind of stuff so he thought if I can get some new DNA I can refine my experiments and make better clones and better chimeras especially a wrench into your idea hmm. because before they met uh, the Locus Vile, they mm-hmm. met with Jamie uh, at Avalon. So mm-hmm. it could be like Tinfoil had on that Jamie sent them, mm. sent Sinister to die. You know, just throwing it out there, it's never gonna be confirmed, I think. But you can head cannon it if you want. I mean, that's not a bad well, theory, my, my honestly. Favorite, that is not a bad theory at all. My, my favorite thing about it is that we went into Ten of Swords, we were on this huge quest to get swords and there was a tournament that turned out to be a you know dance party and and runway walk off and all of this like and we and even with all of that going on it was like okay so what was hellions about hellions was just this like side mission that like really did not impact the tournament in any way shape or form yes that's exactly what it was however it turns out to impact the progress of mutant kind like in such a substantive way that that little side mission that we thought was just you know sinister being campy and trading capes with uh with, with jamie braddock really was leading up to the birth of the chimeras which is huge like just oh so good so good such a big payload of a story delivered in such a nice little bundle of a joke and side mission that you didn't think was going to pay off quite like this and it also parallels the vibe of ten of swords which is that they go on a quest for swords but it's not actually about the swords it's all fucked just like the the ten of swords tournament is not really about the swords it's all fucked so i do like looking back i do really appreciate that that like it seems kind of off but it actually fits that like you should be like wait what just like when they're doing the runway you should be like wait what like it's all meant to be like subversive yeah and adding to uh... What Arturo said with how that little quest ended up being quite important in the long run. We have to think that Amenta was only, I think, in like life 
six or somewhere of Moira. And I think there were no chimeras in that life. Just until the last la- life nine, I think. So these chimeras will be the first chimeras to have both Krakoan and Iraqi DNA, I think. I may, I may be getting a bit confused with the timelines, but that's going to be a huge point if the Sinister makes chimeras that are like, imagine mixing Rasputin 4 with Iska, for example. Right. Yeah, that'd be like... Wait, wait, wait. before already, we get Iska to Rasputin 4, I need to meet Rasputin 1, Rasputin 2, and Rasputin 3, baby. I want all the of Rasputin them. Rasputin Prime. And, like the and you know what? Hey, you can give me Rasputin 1 could be, and I'm just throwing this out there because towards the end of the issue, Sinister and his clone goes through a no-gate keyed solely to SX DNA, of course, linked to a, a linked to a location you do well to keep secret. Wouldn't want this Amenthian psycho to show up and start breaking things, not when I've stored such precious cargo there. So I posit to you, my friends, is one of the first Chimera we're going to meet Psylocke's long-lost daughter in a new body. Yes. What do you think? That was exactly what that line gave me. I mean, that's why she reacts the way she does, because he's responding directly to her asking, where are you going? And this is, again, one of those things that, like, Sinister thinks he's Tarn, but, like, he's not, because, again, the Hellions don't obey him like that. So he's, like, he thinks that he can just, like, blackmail them or, like, murder them until they do what he wants. But, like, I just don't see that happening. Like, at the end of the day, like, I just could not imagine that, like, the Hellions submit to Mr. Sinister. And this is going to blow up in his face. But the question is, much like with the arcade storyline, is that what he wants? Like, he's always doing, not to be sort of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, but Mr. Sinister is playing a game within a game. And (laughs) I'm, like, curious as to, like, if this is what he wants. No, and I think that you're you're very right, Arturo, because... You, you can see Quanon uh, like, just dropping to the ground immediately. Like, she knows. If you see and that she's going to have to tell well, and, the rest and, of the team also, like, what has been going on. Yeah. Well, and the last we saw of of Kanon's daughter, she was basically a hologram of, like, a DNA double helix. You know, she was basically, like, stored in the cloud somewhere. And, you know, I think that's that might be how we see her. That might be referring to the precious cargo. But I think if we're going to our first Chimera farm, you guys, I think we're going to meet our first Chimera, and she may be one of them, which I'm so stoked for. Yeah, man, this this is just, this just delivers that we're, we're just waiting for Sinister to do a wig reveal or a cape reveal, as it were, <laughs> take off a cape, have another cape underneath. Yes. <laughs> or take, take off, off that cape, cape, mini cape underneath. Take off the cape, there's a clone underneath. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is the Sasha Valor moment of it all. I think, right, uh, right. He like he, he shakes the wig, and all the clones rain down around him. Yeah, and <laughs> they already saw that. They all came out saying, "Hooray! Hooray! Hooray! It's our birthday!" <laughs> like, God, give that shit to me. Beautiful sacrilege, <laughs> as Tarn says. Fuck yeah. So, um, what did you think of of this? changing artist uh we had a like a feeling artist instead of the usual helions artist for these two issues so what do you think of the art do you like it 
it, not it bad. definitely not bad felt all, man. I, different. I thought it was a good substitute. But yeah, I'm not mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because what I, what I think is really striking, especially about this issue, is the letters. Like if you just focus on the sound effects and mm-hmm. and how um, Ariana uses letters. Like say, look at the page where where Tarn enters mm. and the sound effects. Like you feel them. I, I don't know. And I think. And then when Annie says "fuck Tarn," <laughs> you felt that with your soul. Red. And yeah, I think t- the letters were gr- fantastic in this issue. I think yeah. they were my favorite part of the art. Even more than the colors and, and the lines, yeah. the letters really gave the issue weight. Yeah, in, in a way that sometimes like... you don't feel because you don't. You, yeah. I think if you notice letters, it's because they're either incredibly good or incredibly bad. And this mm. was a case where they were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely so agree. Like throwing it out there, congrats to 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 Ariana for making fantastic letters. For, I don't know if you say fan- making or writing or however but, you say it. Well, honestly, like um, I don't. Yeah, I, like I don't know if it comes down to the letter or if it comes down to the artist as to who draws those those effects but yeah i, I think, think between letter, between the, the letter, oh, that's a letter i think yeah okay because i thought so Ariana also did the betsy you know remember in ten of swords when betsy crumbles and oh, the letters yeah. also crumble with her that was a choice yep. by the letter which is the same letter as here yeah, yeah, that's a really good point because because uh, Ariana is the letterer consistently on this title. But you're right; we we are seeing a change not just in the artist but also the color because we typically our team here is Steven Segovia who's been doing a bang up job, and I think our color artist more often than not is David Curiel. So seeing both of those roles changed up for this issue could have been really jarring. But credit to this team; they you know, and again. Their names are Pero Roje Antonio and Rain Barreto on color came in and did a great job. I think one of the one of the biggest tricks you can pull off when you're a guest artist or colorist on a series is kind of flying under the radar and just not disrupting it. And and they did that. Like this felt like an issue of Hellions. I, it, it didn't feel like I was reading, you know, New Mutants or anything else. It, it felt like a Hellions issue, which is a pretty neat trick. And I think Ariana Mars steady hand on letters helped kind of blend that together. It parallels Ten of Swords also, in that Ten of Swords was also a different artist. It was not Steven Segovia, it was Carmen Carnero. So, like, the both Locus Vile issues have different artists, and I think that will help us, like, make them stand apart from the rest of the run, in a way. They, they did wonderful if those were actually, like, you said it was two different artists. I didn't even realize that, because it felt like the character that they originally came up with, all the Locus Vile, it felt like that was very much brought over into this art style so i didn't even realize it was a, a different artist because it it has all of the the color the movement the flow the aesthetic so i think uh, hats off to them they did a really good job at blending those two to dig together so it feels like it's still all part of one story <laughs> so wait yeah i think now I think that thing that's like worth like just pointing out that's so cool about this era is like we you know in krakoa everyone's getting resurrected like all the hits, all the all the B-listers, C-listers, D-listers, like everybody's got a chance to come back. And it's always thrilling when you see somebody that you haven't seen on panel in 20 or 30 years of publication history or, you know, whatever. So all those like deep pulls are really great and fun. But that said, there's also this whole other side of the sandbox where new characters are are being introduced and and new stories are being told and and I love that. I loved 
meeting all of the Iraqi and all of the Amenthi, you know, back in Ten of Swords. And I love that we're just building on that and that uh, and that fans are reacting so well to that, that it's not just like, give me a classic, you know, villain, hero, whatever, give me a deep pull. It's there's also plenty of room in our hearts and our minds to like get into these new characters and the and the creative teams in the X office are having a lot of fun with that, you know, whether it's Pepe designing like all of these incredible characters or or like we're seeing in Hellions, you know, it's just it's really neat that that there's room for everybody on Koa and Araco. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I, I do have one final question because I'm just it's starting to sink in. Mudgear is now blind. Amino Fetus is missing an arm. And the recanter, uh, he's dead. Do they get brought back? That has been a prevailing question for me about all Araco, Iraqi mutants in general, is that we have not yet gotten a declaration on resurrection protocols for them at all, and or whether they even have their own resurrection protocols or anything of the sort, because they've been doing mutant magic and mutant technology for thousands of years. Like, it's definitely, if they could send a piece of Araco to Earth, like, I'm sure they can bring people back, but I'm very curious curious about that especially with storm on the great ring like how much do they know how much can they like trust them you know what i mean to like have that those like state secrets like i I have no clue i'm very fascinated i'm gonna say probably yes because we know that the white sword Mm, i was just about to say soldiers all the time now Mm. the locust vial are different sort of breed from whoever the um white sword used as you know cannon father but yeah i'm gonna say yes they have some sort of resurrection that we have we haven't seen it yet but i think they have to have it or they're gonna go to go war i will say this on this pod i i will say this i will eat my nikes if Tarn the Uncaring does not have a clone form a la Sinister and the Marauders where he's got stock of each of these people. Each of each of them, I think, is he's probably got a line of them. And uh, and I see their names as more like titles. And if we lose uh, what's her name? Mother Rapture, we've got another one on ice. Don't worry, she'll be she'll be ready for breakfast. We got Mother Rapture too. <laughs> Electric The Second Coming. <laughs> <laughs> I would also note that the Iraqi mutants, like a lot of them, seem to have lived a very long time, much mm-hmm. like Apocalypse and whatever. But the only one of them that is confirmed to be an external is White Sword. So it mm-hmm. is possible that they've been being resur- they've been resurrected many times, or they've like unlocked some secret to longevity. But it's not clear that like like it's not officially stated that all of them just have longer lives. Like it could be that they've been getting resurrected over like thousands of years Hmm. no but very yeah i I totally agree with that um but very specifically with the locust vial very specifically with the locust vial i think there you have to look at them a little bit separate from the rest of the iraqi and and the amenthians because the locust vial is like basically tarn the he's tarn the uncaring he's not tarn the unprepared this is like basically his little petri dish of 
you know, mutates, we'll say. So I think they're like on a horrifying things. You gotta, you gotta look <laughs> at them differently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, they're like the Marauders plus Chimeras. I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I think about this often because, you know, now that we have Resurrection for Koa, what does that mean for Arako or what, what has Arako established, right? Because just like you all have said, we're, we're meeting characters who have lived for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, and we don't really get that, that deep, you know, rooted history of why that is, whether it is longer lives or resurrection. When I think about the white sword, I actually think that his ability to resurrect his 100 warriors is a, a specific ability to him and not necessarily something yeah, that has to do. Yeah, not, not that it has to do with like a resurrection protocol. For Tarn the Uncaring, again, mm. I feel like you're all on the right page with this, that, that it's, it's Tarn specifically with his vile locus and it's something more about, um, um, Broadway, you you mentioned one of one of the institutions that they had in Amen that maybe that's part of it. But I, I also remember them saying I don't know if it's the same thing, but they talked about the school of vile or the vile school. Yeah, 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 that's it. And and so I have to really wonder if mm, if mm-hmm. again it's if it's something similar to resurrection, if it's its own thing with the like breeding with a Rocky and Amen mutants, and you know obviously because he cared so much about the fact that Sinister stole his DNA from his creations, like it makes me think again that this is this is something specific to that character so i'm still i'm still left kind of wondering about what happens with other iraqis right uh the iraqi mutants because we do see some characters who are the x number in their line one of the characters we see at the very beginning ideal the seer right she she's like the third ideal like she's the, the you know of her line so why why is she the third and there are no others why do they decide not to resurrect and have multiple you know i think she's basically a precog or is that you know like do they have specific ways of, of dealing with you know having the line of characters or mutants with certain abilities i'm wondering and i love that we're we're all so excited to find out more i like that we don't know the specifics there's something really exciting about not knowing exactly what it is so we can still speculate and kind of throw yeah. around those ideas. I kind of hope we don't find out exactly, <laughs> right? We don't want to lose the mystery completely, but I hope that we do get a little bit more, right? Especially with like right now we're dealing with Tarn. I hope we get a little bit more insight into why he cared so much, why it's so specifically of interest of him to get revenge and get his property back from Sinister. Because he's a raging narcissist is really my first guess. Of, uh, intellectual property attorney. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that, uh, yeah, I just, ugh, no, <laughs> I don't want to show up to that court date. No, thank Tarn you. Tarn Brothers LLC. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I'm going to just say that that the Iraqi do not have resurrection yet because I would like to think that if they did, that there would be some kind of allusion to that. But who knows? I mean, I, I accept that Iska, Genesis, Apocalypse, I'll go ahead and I'll say all of Apocalypse's children. Uh, I'll say Solemn. Like there are some that are eternal and have this like eternal blood, but I don't take that at face value for everyone else. But yeah, who knows? It's it is interesting that Idol the Future Seer 
Uh, this is the, like you said, this is the, the third iteration of, of the person to hold that title. And I agree with you that this is like the kind of thing that I don't need to know all the details going in. Just like give me enough to roll with the story. And then, you know, we can have fun unveiling that, you know, slowly but surely. Like we're, we're in good hands. So just thinking of another character as an example, you know, we were introduced to the summoner. And I know that the summoner was an unreliable narrator, but we did we not find out that there were more summoners and now there are less so you know if they had resurrection why don't they just keep replenishing the summoners so i i I, i'm kind of agreeing with you on this one arthur i feel like we don't have enough evidence to say that they do have resurrection and it might be something that's very much sought after from their you know krakoan cousins i agree i think those are actually all very good points and i think that I'm curious to learn. I mean, like I, I'm one of those people, despite you know what the internet says, I really like Excalibur, and a big part of it is the mutant magic element. And I'm curious because they talk about how, like, they you know they talk about mutant alchemists and engineers in Araco helping to build the towers, which were just like like sentinel, not sentinels, it's a bad word, turrets, basically just like murking a menthe demon. But I'm curious to see, hopefully, more in Excalibur about the magic side of it because some of that involves the summoners but also there's like all sorts of other stuff like i don't know i just feel like how did they survive with 20 times as many people as on krakoa for thousands of years against the horde like they have to have some like aces up their sleeves besides just like uh like whoever's on the great ring because like not everybody in the great ring is gonna be like a warrior like the prophet is not necessarily out here like you know know future sighting people to death so like they gotta be doing something pretty badass and i'm ju- i'm just very curious like, i see what my death coming soon mechanisms are. <laughs> but no, no no i think i think you're right i think you pointed out a, like a really good thing like there has to have been more than just say like the white sword who could you know do some sort of resurrection i mean you would think that they at least at one time um could have magics that would do resurrections because they had magics way back with you know genesis and apocalypse and whatnot there was some sacrifice that was needed for it but there were magics that they could use that you know help to either resurrect or uh reconstruct or do that kind of thing so you would think that there'd be at least one or two mutants or maybe a group of mutants that could do you know the fastball special or the five special right of being able to like either resurrect people from scratch or mend uh, a severely broken body at the very least and they have something similar to the six because they were able to like break into they were able to like warp uh, Araco to Amen and then also send pieces of it back which like to me suggests like not just like teleporting locally but like really doing kind of like like time space shit so i don't know like somebody's got somebody's gotta like have some sort of medical expertise that they could like gas up agreed the other thing to consider is that the quiet council the great ring we have these you know parallels right with krakoa Araco. there are so many different things and i suppose the other thing that we could consider is that maybe the great ring is more uh what's the word i'm looking for uh a little pickier about who is allowed to resurrect maybe maybe it's not that everybody gets to go through resurrection or everybody gets to uh have their lifespan elongated maybe maybe there there's a a selection process that you're not deemed fit enough to survive maybe you don't get the benefit of this so it's possible because i mean they are a 
a very warlike people. And so who knows? I agree with that. I think there would be like this, only the worthy survive. I mean, going right back to like apocalypses, you know, apocalypse 101, like survival of the fittest, I think is like a defining characteristic for the Iraqi. So I don't know how, how kindly they would look upon, you know, resurrecting the fallen. I will say I take one issue with this entire wonderful, wonderful book. One problem I have with it, I could have done with a little more Sabinar of the Depths. We just see him in one panel, like side view, back view. We don't get any dialogue from him. And we only got two two sentences out of Iska. So, you know, Zeb Walls, if you're listening, hope you are. Give us us more Sabinar and Iska, please. Actually, the entire X office, just across the board, more Iraqi, please just pump it into us. Like, I respect making this about the Hellions and Tarn and the Locust Vile Mr. Sinister but also i need my fix you know yes yeah hopefully yeah, one of yeah. the don't, like, don't... mystery books that was announced like uh the one that with uh what's the guy's called the guy that wrote black tom not 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 our tom but it's a fantasy book oh i was gonna say uh <laughs> it's called a ballad of black tom he's gonna write that guy's gonna write a, a mystery book we don't know what it's called yeah it was I know announced on, on the next monday like a few months ago um, maybe one of those books is like just Araku, you know give us everything from Araku, like history resurrection no resurrection culture uh, i mean how how they make relationships do they have babies i don't know i, I want to know all that stuff and, and th- this is what's like really cool about this era like we know it's gonna end someday but i feel that like there's enough meat to that Krakoan steak that we could keep eating for a decade for a decade you know there's so much and even oh, if yeah. Hickman leaves or leaves or whoever we're gonna we can still stay here for for years and years just with Araku like all you guys mentioned could be five years for four stories you know mm, yeah absolutely what was his name Victor Laval yes Victor Laval is the uh writer one thing I'm I'm always interested in as like a world building fanatic and this is like I like I'm a sucker for like the data pages and whatnot but those often build out the kind of institutions of Krakoa and like you know just down to like oh like here are the four like war captains and things like that and so i want to know about the institutions of Araco. like how did they as like a unit work like because i don't know wartime economy and culture is entire is radically different like none of us as far as i know we're here for like world war ii and it's like that kind of total war economy is very different and like the way that your institutions work I fun fact Broadway. about america we once had a national childcare system during during World War II because mm-hmm. there was nobody to take care of kids. And it's like those little things. Like, what is, you know, I don't know, what is Sobinar doing during the war? Like, what are all of the, like, young mutants doing? What are, who's growing food? Like, all of those little things give you so much to work with. And I'm interested to see the parallels. Like, we all, the only parallel we really have is the Great Ring and the Quiet Council. And I'm just very mm-hmm. intrigued by, like, what, what else is going on. Well, I bet they're going to be the exact opposite of capitalism so <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like i feel like it's like mercantilism but like violent like there's right. a finite amount of things in amanth and i'm going to kill you for them and if that's the problem including your husband if it's solid <laughs> like i'm going to kill you for what i need he's gonna sleep mm-hmm. with you first and then, and then kill you to me and, and steal what he needs like a real queen <laughs> yeah and i think it's uh, the whole thing about the economy of of a man of well 
Araco compared to Krakoa is that Krakoa is a post-scarcity world with no money, no currency, no like no scarcity of anything, food, resources. And Araco is is defined by its lack of resources. Yeah, way. yeah. So like if you want to say something interesting about you know economic systems and, and social systems, you can say it with Araco just as good as you say it with with Krakoa now. And and that would be a fantastic book. But I don't know if Disney's gonna go for it, you know. <laughs> Oh, that'd be amazing to you know oh, I, yeah, I, I would read it I would absolutely read that the hell out of yeah. any book like that I, I, oh, yeah. I don't know if it's <laughs> if it's happening in Hellions but I will say this about socioeconomic you know, politics and capitalism. Every day that Marvel does not release an Iraqi book, they're just leaving money on the table because I assure you there is a hungry audience for it. Like the fans are here, we're primed and ready. Give us an Iraqi book and and like we'll be there. We'll be there with bells on. 